BBC Five Live. What's up? I'll tell you what's up. You're looking at me as though something is up. Yeah, because I have a story to tell you. It's only a short one, and it's slightly celebby, but not massively okay, celebby. So we're peaking quite early. Yeah, we are, but that's okay. fine. Let's, let's start on it's a big... It's a showbiz anecdote. Start on Gather around. Take the Michael Bolton thing. Start on a big chorus and go up from there. So okay. the other day, uh, Wednesday, in fact, uh, I was at the Festival Hall in Southbank Centre because I was introducing, they were doing a screening of Phantom Thread yes. with a live uh, orchestral performance of yes. the score. Um, I'd seen Phantom Where's Thread. Where's that then? It's in the South Back Centre in London. In London. Just in London. Say, sorry, yeah, in, in sunny London. And, uh, and I'd seen the film, you know, some time ago. I've now seen it four times, but I've seen it sometime and I really, really loved it. And you'd done uh, stuff. Anyway, so... I had done the interview. The, the interview, exactly. yes. yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm, Not any, just stuff. No, 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 but I'm going to come back to that. There was a reason why I skipped over that, which you probably now spoiled. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, so... Um, I so I went along and uh, it was only a very very short introduction. It was just like sort of, you know ten minutes of Q and A with with Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood before the thing. The main thing was seeing the score perform live because I'm a huge Johnny Greenwood fan and I love the music that he's done fan thread. And um, anyway, Paul Thomas Anderson was there, and I'd seen Johnny Greenwood around recently, but I haven't seen Paul Thomas Anderson in in a long time. I, I've interviewed him face to face some years ago, but I think the last time I interviewed him for, was for the oh no, it was Inherent Vice, wasn't it? So anyway, so he came up. And and he said, hi. And I said, oh, do you remember me? He said, of course I remember you, which was very nice. Barry. And then he said, I was with your other half the other week. And, <laughs> and I, I went, pardon? He said, no, I, yes, I was, I was with your other half. And I th- aye, aye. I said, what were, you, were you in Exeter? He went, no. I said, what, 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 how, how do you... I'm your other half. Yeah, and then he Ooh. said... and then, so there we go. It was a genuine confusion. Somebody said they're with my other half and they didn't mean the good lady, Professor Her indoors. They meant you. Which actually is reassuring because if Paul Thomas Anderson had been with the good lady, Professor Her indoors, you'd be thinking, under what circumstances? Exactly. Why? Why? It's, well, hence, why are you in Exeter? Anyway, so no. So he now thinks of you and me officially Very good. as two halves of the... And who are we you, to? You complete me. You complete me. No, that's just weird. You had me at hello. That is also you had me at what's up. You can okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, back to normality. Okay, with Ned, what, whatever that may be. Yes. Ned in York. Hello, Ned. Dear marketing and comms, I write regarding the church's recruitment policy. I'm partial to a couple of Five Live football podcasts, uh-huh. which sometimes feature interjections encouraging us to listen to other shows from the BBC stable. Well, they don't encourage you; they shout at you yeah. to do it. We are advised that if we like the Five Live Football Daily, we'll also love Wittertainment. Natural Bedfellows, I'm sure Mark would agree. Yes. I mean, you download it all the time. I do, I, yeah. but I listen to it before we do the show. Now, there then follows a clip. Now, keeping in mind there's over a 1,000 hours of wittering in the archives, this is what they chose to display the, sh- to display the show to its best advantage to potential listeners. Mark, archly, if you don't know your app from your elbow, Simon, entirely without mirth, ha-ha, Mark, boom, tish, here all week, tip your waitress. Then the clip ends and we go back to the football. Are you serious? Now, I say this with love. I've been <laughs> alive for 37 longish years, says Ned, and I don't think I've met a single human who would be more likely to listen to the show after hearing that excerpt. <laughs> Please can Robin, the editor, have a word with the powers that be and get a better clip. It's so bad... You have to wonder if the BBC bosses are actively trying to undermine the flagship film programme in order to stop your extraordinary popularity embarrassing That's other, it. it's a, it's, flaggier, it's even cons- shippier shows. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. I hadn't thought of that, but now you put put it that way, Ned. 
Maybe, maybe. Do you think they're trying to big us down so that they can big other? Maybe they're downsizing. Maybe that's, they're attacking us. Really? By, can we make sure there's a better clip? But, you know, funny enough, if... Why don't we do that now? Let's do a better clip. So okay. We record it. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. I know I'm... Uh, and, and hello, podcast downloader. I'm sorry to interrupt but this, uh, this really good uh, podcast from Five. Which is Triff. Which is really good. And but it's, you it's might also... Just getting to a really good bit, so yeah. I'm really sorry to, to have interrupted. However, yes. uh, the Wittertainment podcast yes. is even better than this one. It is, if that's possible to imagine... Get all the details from the Five Live website. Tickety boo. How about that? It'd be great. Okay. It wasn't very funny. I mean, I actually I thought that something funny was going to happen, and then it didn't. It just, it just goes to show, just like life, that <laughs> I was waiting for something good to happen, <laughs> and then and it, it didn't. didn't. So we just carried on. Yeah, uh, Patrick is in Berlin. He said you recently got a mail. Uh, Don't say it like that. Like Patrick is in Berlin. Well, you never know quite where he's going to be next, do you? Anyway, you recently got a mail from China that listed movie titles and the literal yes. translation from Chinese into English. Yeah, the classic one being Bitter Tears, a Little Singing Star. The same stuff happens uh, when films open in Germany. They change the title into a German title, but then they don't translate it from the English one. They give it a completely new title. Okay. It's not as bad as it used to be. So currently the post is called The Publisher, which kind of... Yeah, that's, that's okay. And in fact, I mean, in many works. ways, because I do remember that when I first heard The Post without reali- without seeing anything about it, I did think it was, what, like The Postman? Is it the, what The Post? It's a, it's a film about The Post. Yeah. So The Publisher kind of works as well. Yeah. But Gone in 60 Seconds is only 60 seconds left. On the waterfront is The Fist in the Neck. <laughs> it's a bit... <laughs> North by Northwest is the unknown third person. <laughs> is that um, Duck Soup is the Marx Brothers go to war. <laughs> and Annie Hall is the town neurotic. <laughs> anyway. There's, um, I know there was, there was a film some years ago when I first started working at Time Out. So it must have been is it. that the listings magazine in London? It that is. used to charge money and is now free. It's now free, that's right. Um, yeah, take it. I don't want it. I've got a book to read. That's what I did to it. I, I turned it from a saleable commodity into a free sheet. Um, where was I? Oh, yes. There was a film that came out that I reviewed quite early on called Getting It Right with Jesse Birdsell, who briefly I used to be mistaken for. Yes. And as far as I remember, Jane Horrocks. And in Dutch, that film is called At Least I've Still Got My Vespa. Which is a little bit clumsy. Yeah. That anecdote tailed off, didn't it? It, it did, but it, it did, but you know that's the way of anecdotes. Yeah, <laughs> in, like, like life in general. Okay, you were expecting something and then it tailed. When I started telling it, I thought it was. I thought it had a funnier punchline. When Ma- uh, who's this? Mike Collins has been on now. When Mad Max Fury Road opened in Cardiff, this is about allocated seating. Okay. Oh yes, fine. We brought this came up last week, and I did say, bear in mind, this is a very heated issue because the the, the battle lines are drawn between those who believe in it and those who don't believe in it. And my feeling is, if you're going to have it, it has to be properly sorted out. Yes. Our otherwise, friend, otherwise, don't have it. Our friend Tommy got in touch, the live orchestra guy, and he Tommy Pearson. Yeah, and he yeah. was he, he was saying the thing about having a, a seat that you've reserved is that I don't want to sit through half an hour of all the other preamble. Yes, I, I want, want to, to arrive up at and, the last minute yeah. and to have my seat available. Back off. Yeah, and actually, it being Tommy, he would do that thing. He would turn up at exactly the right time. He wouldn't do the annoying thing of turning up five minutes late. Anyway, Mike says, when Mad Max Fury Road opened in Cardiff, we had allocated seating. At a very full showing, there were rumblings of discontent. The movie started, then five minutes into the breathless action, it stopped. Lights went up, the manager walked out to the front of the screen and announced, if you don't go to your designated seats and get out of other seats, I'm not restarting the movie. 
More muttering, this time accompanied by shuffling and barely audible apologies, and the yeah. movie restarted. Yeah. Drastic but effective measure. Yes. But, but, the, but the point is, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't come to that. What it should come to is, if you're going to have allocated seating, you have to have ushers showing you to your seats, sorting out, because this, this happened because last uh, week somebody sent in an email that their son had ordered, you know, had booked a seat, and then when he got there, he said, excuse me, you're in, you're in my seat, and the people in it said, go sit somewhere else. So if you're going to do it, you're going to have to have properly, you know, paid ushers to do the job. Otherwise, don't bother. Exactly, exactly right. Don't get to the point when you have to stop the film five minutes in. So that some, I mean, you know, it just, yes, if, you, if you're going to do it, it's a complicated process. So either do it properly or don't do it. Do you think that there would be an argument for having, like, emergency buttons in, in the seat? So well, ejector seats. Well, if there's misbehaviour going on, that you can report it. You say you press a button, a bit like being on a plane, you press a button for uh, an attendant to come along. You press a button and then an attendant comes along, an usher comes along, and then you point at the offender. No, because what you should have is you should have ushers in the cinema monitoring. It, shouldn't be, uh, it should not be the responsibility of people. Because, and I know we've joked about this a lot, if you're in the cinema and somebody is breaking the code and doing all the rest of it, why should it be your responsibility to have to go, excuse me, can you stop doing that? Because as we know, people tie themselves up in knots about it. I mean, you know, not least, I mean, I do. And, uh, you know, I had that exciting time at a major a major cinema in uh, London's heady centre not so long ago, in which I paid top dollar to see a film, because it, I'd been away the week it was out, to, to see a film in a big cinema and did have to explain to somebody to turn their phones off, only to find that somebody waiting outside the cinema to have an altercation with yeah, me about not, it. Not good, eh? Cathy uh, Bacon, similar subject. I, f- I felt for your listener's son, actually, same subject, not similar subject, who had found someone else in his seat and thoroughly agree with you that he should not have had to face this situation. Yeah, exactly. As a very rule-abiding person, I would, n- I would not be relaxed sitting in a seat with a different number from the one on my ticket. I feel the same way. Imagine my discomfort there for a few years ago when an usher, yes, this was a screening where we were ushered to our seats, thank you, Odeon, quietly informed me that my daughters and I were sitting in another family's seats. Indignantly, I produced our tickets to prove that we were, in fact, in the right place. The usher checked the tickets, agreed with me, and took the other family away, which makes it sound very drastic. (laughs) After the screening, I indulged in a little rant to my husband about the computer glitch that could possibly have allowed two people to be booked into the same seats, and it was only as I was disposing of the tickets later in the day that I noticed that, in fact, I had mistakenly booked the screening for the following day. So with no <laughs> computer glitch, it was just my human error. So uh, I need to apologise to the... Fa- this is like a... Confession. This is like confessions. This is like a... a humbly apologise. crossing the, of the streams. Exactly, to the family whose places we had taken. And I hope that the usher found you some great seats and that you enjoyed the film, which was Ballerina. Uh, we all quite enjoyed it as a Saturday morning viewing, although I had my doubts about the age-appropriateness of some aspects of the plot. OK. On the other hand, this proves again the value of code compliantly arriving before the trailers. If we'd been late, we would have been the ones without a seat and probably by mis- my mistake would have been discovered. Yeah. Anyway, hello to Jason and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, there's some other Jason correspondence coming up later on because he's being much talked about. Yes, do you want to just flag up why? Well, a lot of the uh, correspondence, a lot of the stuff that he's being discussed about online yeah. is because of uh, Star Trek. And about whether this particular th- aspect of the story, the thing, yeah, and how that and relates to the other, other one of the story, You're, are you are you treading very carefully and between what the implications might be for the other one and the original one, and indeed for him himself? Can I just ask? Do you do you have outside? Have you been 
have you been in contact with Jason on this? Are you just Not working basis, entirely on the basis of what's in the public domain? I tweeted him the other day saying... Oi, what's up? No, saying a little less torture would go down quite well. <laughs> on balance, just saying. <laughs> they ignored me completely. So I think he didn't I, take that straight to the producers and say, look, a very important... I think he's. Lo- I think he's a lost soul. I think he's... Basically, he loves all the torture and he just wants more of it. (laughs) Well, you know, I would like to remind you that in the 1970s, Jason was the person who invented the playground game of rollerball. There you go. And he ends up head of the Soviet army and (laughs) doing all that shouting and swearing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Anyway, so I'm really looking forward to today's show. There's only one guest. It's not like last week's double special. Yeah. Uh, with a couple of top directors. Incidentally, that um, the the podcast only full interview with with Denis Villeneuve was terrific. Well, he was terrific. Well, you know, we yeah, no, it was really good. We it wanted was... to have him on for ages, so we just took the opportunity, even though it was unusual because we were talking about a DVD release. Yeah, we hadn't had a chance to speak to him for this for the film. So, and what a wonderful voice he has! Didn't you think it was outrageously Canadianly French? Qu- Quebecois? Que- que- is that how you say it? Quebecois? I think, I think you do indeed say it just like that. But he was, you know, he was terrific, and, and also he's welcome back. On he's one of those people who's just welcome back on the show at any time. Uh, well, are you ready and poised? I am as ready and poised as I shall ever be. OK, well, we should do the rest of the show then. Okie dokie. Dame Helen Mirren is our special guest just after 2.30. Mark's got a few movies to uh, to be thinking about. Yes, so we'll do uh, Journey's End. We'll do Roman J. Israel Esquire. We will do Phantom Thread, which is the Paul Thomas Anderson. Of course, Paul Thomas Anderson came on the show just a couple of weeks ago when you interviewed him. And we shall review Winchester after you have spoken to, Dame to her man. It was just last week, I think, Paul Thomas Anderson, really. Was it just last week? Yeah, it was. So By the way, it's a very a... jaunty green tie. A real treat I, for the... I don't think it's green. Members. I think it's blue. OK, well, it's it's a green tie as far as everyone else is concerned, but I'm sure people will... I think it's turquoise. OK, well, it's obviously going to be a vote if you're watching online. Not that we do votes anymore. No, yeah, I think it's definitely closer to blue. OK, fine. Well, that'll be an ongoing... Uh, Thing for but thank you. Thirty seconds, um, Simon. I like Witcher. your black T-shirt. Thank you. In common with many Ray trimming long-term listeners, I was wondering what would spark my first-time email, and now that moment has arrived. After signing up to, we a- should have music for first-time little stings. Yeah, like like the one for the DVD of the week. Okay, but I don't think we've got one just at the moment. No, no, no. I'm just suggesting it for the production team to work on during all the spare hours that they have. After signing up to an extras agency on a whim and almost forgetting about it... On a whim. I was approached to be part of... How can you sign up to an extras agency on a whim? I was approached to be part of a film that was being made in Blackpool, close to where I live. I didn't hold out much hope, and I imagined that it would be some kind of straight-to-video production. But after seeing the extent of the pre-production work and the tantalising name of the project... Project, PTA, I started to become very excited indeed. I was to be part of a large scene, which I imagine will appear at the climax of the film, because we are, of course, talking Phantom Thread. Yes. A New Year's Eve party. At the costume fitting, which is, of course, uh, which is actually a scene, a uh, big scene in the film. Yes, it is. At the costume fitting. Well, the costume fitting is also a big scene. In the many film. of the other extras emerged wearing smart suits and dresses, but when it came to my turn, I was given a pair of peach-coloured arabesque trousers <laughs> and a waistcoat with nothing to wear underneath. I have to say... <laughs> I'm sure I saw you, I have to say that at the time, I couldn't see this being worthy of an Oscar nomination for costume design, particularly as we had to walk through a cold Blackpool town centre in our costumes to get to the set. Because it's meant to be... Is it Chelsea Arts Club, is it? 
It's meant, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's certainly a very yeah, cool place yeah. in Chelsea it's supposed to be. In his interview uh, on the show, Paul said he didn't really have to direct Daniel Day-Lewis on set, but there was certainly a lot of directing going on for us as we were made to sing Old Lang Syne Many times. most of the March day. Being on the set was a fantastic experience as I've been a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson's film since Boogie Nights. I imagine Daniel Day-Lewis would be very aloof and keep himself to himself. But at various points in the day, he was to be found mingling with the rest of us on set. Somehow I found myself waltzing within three feet of Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Creeps, and I await this film with bated breath to see if I can spot myself. Do you recall someone in arabesque trousers and a waistcoat? I don't, but I, I've, I've only seen it four times. I shall go back the fifth okay. looking out for it. But I have to say that scene is largely stolen by the man wearing the gigantic dog head. That is also true. Anyway, look out for Simon Witcher. Anyway, he says, like Paul Thomas Anderson, I now find myself walking around a busy metropolis, the outskirts of Blackpool, hoping that someone will recognise my <laughs> contribution to an Oscar-nominated film. But failing that, having my email read out by your fine selves will be more than adequate alternative. This was because Paul Thomas Anderson went to the cinema just after the Oscar nominations and he went to see downsizing and he he, he expressed his, dis, his dismay that people didn't rush up to him and say aren't you the Oscar nominated Paul Thomas Anderson? Yes he was just anonymous. In fact they said do you want coffee with that sir? Simon, uh, Simon signs his email love the show Stephen down with the Nazis more of which later yes not but not yes. just now yep. okay Steve Christian Wiltshire I'm, I'm going to S- call you Steve for the rest of the show I'm an STL to the podcast but my wife is an NL which is a new listener non-listener Apparently, there, apparently. Sorry, there is such a thing? Although she does like the confessions, apparently. What, on the other station? <laughs> oh, it's my other podcast. So, so uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll take one, but, you know, it'd be nice to have two. I want two out of two here. I've never done the confessions podcast, have I? I don't, I, I, I've got no idea. No, I've never been on it. Oh, you've never been on it? No, so oh, when I you see. say it's fine that you'll take one out of two, but I'm not on it. Well, come along and, and appear. It's perfectly fine. Right. Anyway, due to having a small child, a trip to the cinema together is now a twice-yearly thing at best. I've never discussed the code with my wife, as fortunately I've never needed to. We're both fully paid-up members. Imagine my surprise, then, when on a recent trip to see The Post, I asked her if she was going to get any food or drink. Oh, she said, I've got two soft white bread rolls with me. Never mind the previous 17 years we've been together, says Chris. At that moment, I knew I'd made the right choice in life. So this was completely... Well, she, I imagine that she... I mean, she obviously just behaves properly in a cinema, even though That's she's a non-listener. That's fantastic. All was well with the world, says Chris, until about 20 minutes into the film. Unfortunately, the soft white rolls were in what seemed to be the noisiest sandwich bag on the entire planet. <laughs> I cringed. I leant away to try and pretend I wasn't with her and fired a disapproving glance over in her general direction. Then she proceeded to remove the second roll from the aforementioned noisiest sandwich bag on the entire planet. Whilst I'm sure everything will be all right in the end, I'm not quite sure what to do now. I live in fear of the next occasion we have the opportunity to spend an evening together at the cinema. And on a practical level, I'd love to know how my fellow listeners transport and package their soft white rolls. I would say in tissue paper. Yeah, cellophane's fine, isn't it? That doesn't make any noise. Well, uh, cling film. I said, cling film does a little bit of rustly work there. Very little. I mean, not as much as like a paper bag or something. I thought you were going to say that she had the soft white rolls, but in it she had cheese and onion crisps. Actually, that sounds quite good. I know. A soft white roll with cheese and onion crisps is a top snack. And, it, and basically it covers all the major food groups. It's bread and butter, cheese and onion. Did we say, did we say, this is going back a few years, didn't we say you should take it in a pillowcase? <laughs> I think you said it. 
Well, I think I st- I'm going to stand by that. Let's let's be consistent. Take your take your snacks in a pillowcase. Your soft white roll with your soft cream cheese filling yeah. in a pillowcase. Or if you go to my local, that would be a whole duvet of Mexican food. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just one more. We'll do the box office top ten uh, in just a second. But Christian Jones, senior library assistant, uh, Mary Seacole Library. Okay. During the last six months, the PG-rated Harry Potter films and Peter Pan have been on heavy rotation in our household. The connection between these is the excellent Jason Isaacs, as my youngest son has taken quite a shine to him. This recently became apparent whilst watching Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, when I suddenly heard him frantically shouting. Being a concerned parent, I naturally rushed to his aid, only to find him jumping up and down and waving excitedly at the TV, shouting, Hello, Jason Isaacs! Now, if you ask him... Uh, if he'd like to watch a film he hasn't seen before, all he asks is, is Jason Isaacs in it? <laughs> as he has recently... That's, that's worked for me for years. As his, he has recently turned five years old, I'm wondering if Gabriel is Jason Isaacs' youngest fan. And if Jason is listening, could you please appear in more family-friendly fare? He's most upset that he's too young to watch Star Trek Discovery, what with its adult language and naked Klingons. And torture, Jason. <laughs> Back off the torture. Gabriel has recently changed schools and is finding the transition a little bit difficult, so I'm reassuring him that everything will be all right. Have they seen Peter Pan? So if Mark and Simon... Actually, Christian says if Uncle Mark and Uncle Simon could reassure him, I'm not quite sure I'm happy with that. But anyway, uh, if we could just reassure him that everything will be all right, that'll be good. Well, absolutely, Gabriel. I changed loads of schools and indeed everything is all right in the end. Yeah. Look at us. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But if you're looking for other child-friendly stuff that that Jason is in, I imagine you have seen it already. But if you haven't, he's very good in Peter Pan. I mean, the, 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 the production is flawed, but it has some really good stuff in it, not least him in Peter Pan. Um, okay, we're going to carry on with that subject. I'm just aware that it's a vast amount of correspondence uh, for the top ten because there okay. are loads of films that people want to have a chat about. Okay. Uh, number ten is uh, Padmavat. Which I haven't seen. It wasn't press screened, but you do have some... See, the thing is, you've been saying this about uh, Bollywood films for as long as we've been But some of them are, some of them are. Like, so recently we were talking about uh, the boxing movie, which was really, really terrific, and uh, Secret... Uh, superstar, which I really loved last year. So some of them are, but most of them aren't because they don't rely upon reviews at all. Uh, and Jali Mandal- uh, Mandalia uh, sends uh, this from the Facebook page. I loved this film. I've anticipated it for two years. It's lived up to expectations. I think it's one of the best I've seen in a long time. A genuine work of art, beautiful piece of film, uh, filmmaking. Hats off to Sanjay Leela Banshali, a director I've admired for years. Uh, for not only the direction, but also the music and the score. The performances were great all round. Ranveer Singh is phenomenal. I was absolutely sucked into his performance. Shahid Kapoor has never been better. And Deepika Pudukoni, I hope that is, is fantastic as always. Five stars from me. OK, well, on the basis of that, I'll go, I'll go see it this week and I'll give you a review next Friday. Downsizing is at number nine. All over the shop. Incidentally, I thought Paul Thomas Anderson was fantastically diplomatic and he said that he'd been to the cinema to see Downsizing and you said, what do you think? And you have to understand that asking any filmmaker what they think of somebody else's film, you're usually going to get a diplomatic response. And I thought his response was very diplomatic. It is all over the place. I mean, it's, you know, a potentially interesting setup that just goes all over the place. And I didn't thinking, you know, well, I saw Fantastic Planet and I saw Incredible Shrinking Man and... I'm not entirely sure what this... And it's a, it's a shame because the be, the beginning, the first 30 minutes of it are really interesting and then it loses its way. 
Mark, you're wrong, says okay, Guy okay. Rowland. Downsizing is a glorious, raggedy triumph. Yes, okay, the trailer well, raggedy triumph is a phrase that I like. The trailer condenses the first highly enjoyable 45 minutes into two, giving almost no clues to the film's real intent, which could wrongfoot a casual observer. And I'll admit that when it started branching off into its much-discussed different direction, I was unsure at first and certainly had no idea where we were going. But quickly, it charmed my socks off, especially Hong Chow's wonderful performance. She is the best thing in it. It's a She's absolutely the best thing in it, yeah. Where the twists and turns seem to irritate Mark, they delighted me. Okay. And not a half-hearted yes, but delighted. A whole-hearted, smothering embrace delighted. This is a wild, carefree, intelligent, yet bonkers cinema, and it's a happy miracle that uh, that Paramount bankrolled it. I predict this is a film that time will be more than kind to, a genuine original... Uh, and humane and delightful piece of comic sci-fi that will be embraced as the cult classic it is surely destined to become. Okay, I still have all my reservations about it, but I would agree that it is always more interesting to see somebody aim high and fail than to see somebody playing it safe. And it is certainly true that in the case of this, you cannot fault Alexander Payne on going out there. He does do that. I I didn't think the film held together, partly because I think that the beginning is so good that when it then loses its way, it's a it's you know it's a disappointment. But I I absolutely agree that it is much more interesting to see somebody aim for something unexpected, to take risks and fall down doing it, than to see somebody just you know tick the boxes. Jenny Brad uh, Bradnock, I was disappointed that Mark and other churchgoers did not love this film as much as I did. Okay. Yes, I take on board. There were lots of ideas shoehorned in and not explored thoroughly. Yes, I agree the film was a bit all over the place, but for me, that was its beauty. Who knew where it would go? Perhaps the trailer <laughs> has a lot to answer for, because for a change, it did not tell you the beginning, middle or end. However, perhaps this was a mismanagement of people's expectations, and we all know the impact expectations and mood have mm. on our viewing pleasure. It's a, it's a very valid point. Uh, so that is at uh, number nine, Jumanji. Welcome to the Jungle. Is it eight? Much funnier and more entertaining than I'd expected. I still prefer it to the original. I know some people are very fond of the original, but I never got on board with the original. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is at number seven. I think it's great. And um, I, I've seen it a few times. I do think that it manages to balance the tragedy and the comedy really well. I think Sam Rockwell's performance is terrific. It seems that the the sort of briefly heated controversy about its racial politics seems to some extent have settled down, um, which is quite good. I, I'm still of the opinion that that whole debate blew up because it's an Oscar contender. I don't think, incidentally, it will win, um, it will win big at the Oscars because I think it has proved too divisive. But you're a fan, right? Uh, I thought it was terrific. I, yeah. It made me realise quite how formulaic a lot of the films are. Even even good films are very enjoyable films. There's a pattern and a structure that, that they all follow. But after... You know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes of this, you think, I've got no idea where, where it's going. going. No yeah. idea how it's going to handle it, yeah. what it's going to do. But here's an interesting thing. After we've just been talking about downsizing, I think that Three Billboards is a film that you don't know where it's going and it's for the, and it's for the better for it. Whereas Downsizing is a film that, for me anyway... I didn't know where it was going and I thought it didn't know where it was going either. But in terms of Three Billboards, you you think, I don't know where it's going, but I think I'm in the hands of somebody who knows exactly where it's going. Incidentally, I also think it has a near-perfect ending. 
The post is at number six. Which I like very much. Um, I, as I said before, it's a film that runs straight into All the President's Men. Somebody tweeted me to say that they had done a double bill. They went, they went to see The Post in the cinema, then they went home and watched All the President's Men, and they said it literally did flow together, with the exception of the fact that the central character played by Meryl Streep... Has disappeared. Has disappeared by the time you get to uh, All the President's Men. I think, I think Streep's performance is really good. I think Tom Hanks' performance is really good, but I think the most important thing is that it's a historical story that they have told clearly and precisely that has extraordinary resonance in a time at which truth itself is an embattled commodity. Early Man is at number five. I'll do some Early Man Yeah, I uh, really liked material. it, but you know, uh, Craig, uh, I think it's McClay. Okay. I'll go with that in Goldborn in Warrington. I know daring to criticise Nick Park is borderline illegal, but yeah. I have an issue with Early Man. Okay. It's charming, likeable, skillfully realised... But it's just not funny enough. There were smiles and titters and sniggers, but the few genuine laughs were all in the trailer. Maybe the dazzling perfection of Wallace and Gromit. It was a case of my skyscraping high expectations being unrealistic. There were still the occasional moments of brilliant wit and inventiveness that reminded you of the greatness of your, but overall it was a slight disappointment. Uh, Daniel Pacey. Early man grandstands Ardman's beautiful stop-motion claymation and scores goals with some wonderful puns and visual humour, but as with some of their previous feature-length projects, it is a film of two halves, the story limping on into injury time well before the final whistle is blown, despite a lengthy end-credit sequence. I hate to kick it, but it just isn't as good as it should be and fails to match the form that this big-league studio is loved for. OK, I mean... I laughed all the way through it. I didn't just sort of smirk or grin or whatever. I laughed out loud. And as I said, I know I was in a cinema, I was in a screening and it was just me and one other person. And I think my laughing became intrusive after a while. I loved it. I thought it was terrific. I know that, that it, I don't think it's as good as Curse of the Were-Rabbit in the same way that I don't think that most films are as good as, you know, Citizen Kane or, or Jeremy. But I think it's, it's, it's really, really well done. I'm very happy to go and see it again. And I, I laughed all the way through, there was never a moment that I got bored. There was never a moment I wasn't just enchanted by the the joy of the animation and the craftsmanship that got into it. But the jokes, it's the it's the end of the pier music hall. You know, if you want old gags told anew, then no one does it like Ardman. The Greatest Showman is at number four. Uh, and, you know, it is, Still it, is, it is really hanging on in there and it does demonstrate that this this sort of, you know, groundswell of uh, listeners who've written in to say you've completely misjudged that film. It's really, I mean, clearly it is finding its audience and the people who like it, they don't just like it, they really like it. And so I have made a decision that I would go back and see it again if you came with me. Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? So Maze Runner, the death row. So everybody just write in and encourage Simon that he has to go and see it again with me. And then we will do, you know, like like you were going to do with the, with the Emoji movie, but you didn't do. No, I'm not going to do this one either. So the Maze Runner... Is that, there's literally, that's the end of it? Yes, that's the end of it. OK. So the Maze Runner, the death cure is at number three. Now, I've got an email on this from Alish Bar. And OK, go ahead. Alish Bar is 13 okay. and is a new listener. I've uh, been listening since the start of the year. And she's written it in a conversational style. So I'm going to read it out in a conversational style. OK. Um, and I'm a 13-year-old. OK? Okie dokie. Hi, my name is Dear Wittertainism. My name is Alish Bar, and I'm a new listener starting from this year. I'm 13, so this review might be a bit bad. So here goes. The thing is, I liked it. I would stretch as far as to say I loved it. But there were places in the movie I just went, um, what? <laughs> 
First of all, every time they were in trouble, the flying ship thing saves them conveniently, being there every time they're in a dilemma. It happens three times. and That is true. Oh, so-and-so's dying. Oh, chill. Just wait for the ship to turn up because one way or other, it will. <laughs> there were some good things, though. The whole underground sewage tunnel uh, leads to the city and it's the only way in was kind of cliched. But there's something about the delightful creepiness of the zombies uh, that show up outside the car and there are some genuine moments that make you jump. Uh, even though I haven't seen one and two, I caught up with the story quickly and, of course, tears were shed. I cry at nearly every film I see. It was only a few tears, though, in this one. At around the midpoint of the film, I checked my watch, but the ending was just preposterously long, in capital letters now. Decide on when you're going to end the film. The action scene right at the start was well done and immersed me and my dad into the film, although I caught him having a snooze at the midpoint. Can I say the most brilliant thing... Thanks, Alish. Yeah, thank you. The most brilliant thing about that is that you began by saying, I loved it. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And then said... Qualified it. And then qualified it. And um, I would say, firstly, I think the enthusiasm is brilliant. And secondly, um, honestly, if you, if, you, if you can love the film with all those things that are wrong with it, then that's brilliant. Believe me, there, is, there, are, there are movies that are just going to blow your mind... And it is definitely true that when you're younger, you can go and see things and there'll be huge problems with it, but you still absolutely love them. And later on, you become old and jaded like what I am now. And you do lose that thing by saying, yeah, it was all over the place. It didn't make it, but I absolutely loved it anyway. I still remember walking out of uh, either Despicable, one of the Despicable Me's or Minions movie and a kid turning and saying to their parent, that was the best film I've ever seen. Well, I like, I mean, I like that, but I would yeah. also say in, we're about to do The Darkest Hour, but I... I I am quite happy to say I absolutely loved it. OK, fine. And there's that bit there, and I didn't okay. go along with that, of course, right. but I absolutely loved it. Yeah, anyway. sure. Uh, Coco is it too? Yeah, I I really, really like it. I think it's terrific. I think, you know, I, I keep saying this, but if you like it, please do see um, Book of Life on DVD. The animation for Coco is lovely. It's... They did exactly the right thing. They went and got the right people on board to make sure that they were doing it in a culturally sensitive way. The you know the visuals are sweeping, and it deals with difficult subjects. It deals with you know memory and loss, and you know dementia and death in a way that will work for an audience of all ages. And it's one of the things that you can do with animation, because animation you know somehow appeals to such a broad range of audiences from the youngest to the oldest it is possible for a film like Coco to talk about so and I'd say you know Red Turtle is a is a similar thing talking about universal themes but in a way that almost anyone can appreciate and enjoy uh, Rufus Ashford who's 13 and is in Sydney I've just gone back and rewatched the book of life uh, and I oh, good I'd feared that Coco would live in its shadow now that, this is true throughout the first half of the movie as yeah. it revisits the getting back to the world of the living plot However, the major plot twist that comes halfway through completely flips the narrative on its head, making the movie uh, its own thing. The beauty behind this plot twist is that it lets the audience mislead themselves, dropping enough hints to make them think that they're one step ahead, yeah. but not too much to the point when they're suspicious of being misled. Beautiful storytelling, says 13-year-old uh, Rufus, and crystal imperfection when it comes to animation, a joy to watch. Crystal imperfection. Beautiful storytelling and crystal imperfection when it comes to animation. Again, I love that phrase. I'm not entirely sure what it means, but no. I am going to use it. Uh, I've got so much on not crystalline perfection. I'm, maybe it's an Aussie thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, I like the we'll sound. Come, of it. If we're, I like the sound. We'll of come it. back to more Coco correspondence. Yeah. Darkest Hour is the UK's number one movie. So I'm mm -hmm. going to go first because you've said your thing. Go ahead. 
Are you snoring at the prospect of hearing what the audience think? No. What are you snoring at then? I'm just, the more I think about Darkest Hour, the more I don't like it. The more you're wrong you are. <laughs> Martin Waite just got home from a trip to the uh, local room with a view with my mum. Uh, the last time we enjoyed, or should I say endured, a trip to the cinema was in 1984 to see Ghostbusters. My mother fell asleep. So mortified was I that, so mortified was I that anyone could drop off during Mr Stay Puff <laughs> and its spectacular attack on New York City. It's taken me over three decades to make a return. Mum grew up in the war and remembers her mother telling her how exciting it was to listen to Churchill on the wireless, regaling the exploits of the heroes at Dunkirk. By the look of the general demographic of the audience, I would guess that my mother was not alone with memories of this nature. Equipped with Mark's lukewarm appraisal and my mother's track record of cinema-induced narcolepsy, I was not entirely looking forward to this mother-and-son big afternoon at the flicks moment. Mm -hmm. How naive I was to worry. The film gripped us both from the very second... Uh, From the first second to the dramatic and atmospheric finale, I braced myself for the much-discussed underground scene, but found myself so immersed in the drama that what I saw was an allegorical scene that allowed Churchill to come into contact with his own gut instinct and his perception of the will of the people and the extraordinary spirit found in the British people at this time of peril. I cried, and then in the subsequent scene in the corridors of Westminster, I cried again, and please understand, I don't cry. And my mother... She was wide awake. We both thought this a terrific film, a superb central performance with a splendid sporting cast. Churchill's energy and wit drips through every scene and the changing relationship he shares with George VI is compelling. My mother spoke with enthused zeal on our journey home and asked questions about the history and gave anecdotes from the period of her own experiences later in the war. We bonded like children, like friends, and the disaster of Ghostbuster Gate was long forgotten. Well, that's a brilliant response to have had to it. That's absolutely brilliant, and I can't argue with that. Uh, and uh, if, if if there is time, we'll come back to this correspondence, but there's so many films that people want to discuss. Okay. And there's some new films to discuss Can as I well. Say, uh, is the general response to Darkest Hour positive? Or is it, is it kind well, of... It's very difficult even to sum up. I would say, yes, in general, it's very, very positive, yeah. with a whole bunch of people saying, yes, there are... There are these problems, and I agree with Mark about this, that, and the other. But over again, it goes back to we've discussed discussed this many times before. I mean, clearly, no one disputes that Gary Oldman's performance is brilliant, sensational, and he's going to win. But this, but this film has found its audience. It's it has full of people like Martin and Martin's mum, yeah, and like you, clearly, because you are. I know you're a big fan of it, and it's very telling when you say, "I know the things that are wrong with it, and I don't care because what because it, because it worked for you. It worked on an emotional level, and yeah. you and you really love it." Right? Yeah, and I sat there thinking. This is the kind of film I wish I'd have loved to have gone with my dad to see this film. Right, right, Because right. the role of my dad here is being played by Martin's mum. You know, you can go and see it and you go, there you go, you remember that. And then you have a whole bunch of different sure. stories. Oh. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I am perfectly willing to accept that I am being a curmudgeon and a grouch and a grump. Um, You're just being a film critic, Mark. It's, that's what you do. Yeah, but a, but a really good film critic, ca- yeah. I'm not being Philip French. I mean, I'm being grumpy. No, no. I mean, I, I, you know, I, if were Philip French here, he would see the good in it more than I, more than I'm doing. In the next half hour, I'm going to be speaking to Helen Mirren. What are you going to? I'm going to be reviewing Helen Mirren's movie. Okay, right. Well, it's going to be an interesting double bill. <laughs> it's two thirty-eight. Uh, Helen Mirren in just a second. Cynthia Walker uh, has been on. She signs it. Uh, she's twenty-six, and she wants to say this. I recently came out of a showing of Darkest Hour. Yeah. I sh- which we just talked about. Not the darkest hour. Darkest no, hour just directly. darkest well hour. I share many of the same issues that Mark has. That's not why I'm writing. Okay. At one point early on in the film, 
I heard the unmistakable sound of lip smacking coming from the couple behind me. It wasn't a make lip out. Lip smacking? Yeah. It, what they were, well, you'll find out. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, okay. It wasn't a make out exactly, more like a quick, very affectionate, very noisy swapping of spit. <laughs> this moment in itself <laughs> didn't bother me. Love is wonderful. <laughs> it didn't bother me much after the second time either. Love is grand. The third time, it was a bit much. The fourth time, I just resigned myself to the fact that for the rest of the film, once every five or so seconds, my left ear would be subjected to sloppy, kissy sounds. But I couldn't help but wondering, darkest hour, <laughs> out of all the films you could see, the one that makes you want to cosy up to your significant other features Winston Churchill guzzling whiskey and accidentally flashing his secretary, if that's not a spoiler. It's not. It's not. Is kissing against the code? I suppose it comes up under the no slurping rule, but I swear I'm not a prude. Kissing is great. I, I think it comes up I under love no kissing, hobbies. Just not when it's other people doing it right next to my ear. What do you guys think? I mean, I wonder whether they whether they thought it was because they they wanted a you know a dark place to be into, which is of course one of one of the earliest things of cinema, and they thought darkest hour. Yeah, that's going to be dark. No one's going to. There see. was a, there was a brilliant invention in early cinema because they were so con- they were so worried that if you put men and women together in a darkened space, immorality would break out almost immediately. Well, it does. It's, yeah, in our local. Anyway. So they invented a thing called daylight cinema, whereby the audience would sit on a you know in a cinema thing you sit on a rake to look at the you know so there's a rake so you can see with the person. What actually happens? The incline. The incline. Yeah, yeah, the rake. You'd have a flat surface with a bunch of people sitting in chairs that were in light, and the screen was up above you in a darkened space. So the screen was projecting in a darkened arena, and you were looking up, but you were in the light so that you couldn't get involved in any hanky-panky slurpy stuff. Yeah. Because because they were so convinced that the minute you put people into a darkened arena, that's that's what they'll start doing. And a century later, that still it turns happens. out it's still true. Cynthia is reporting a lot of snogging going on. But you're all right. You would think if you just want to go into dark darker room for a snog, then you wouldn't choose darkest hour. No, unless you thought, well, darkest hour, therefore it's going to be dark. Yeah. I mean, just kiss during the trailers or before you go out, maybe. Yes. Or... Meet in an alleyway. <laughs> a bus shelter. Yes. There are other places. Fine for all of us. Or a bit like the the, the bread roll. If you're going to kiss, silent is fine. No, I think, yeah. I thought I think it comes under hobbies, and I think no hobbies was a, was a strict rule. Good. What was the, 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 you know, the cinema ones? No running, no thing, no petting. Swimming pool, yeah. Yes, no running, no jumping, no bombing, no, no petting, they used to call it. That's what we've... And I think we're, clearly we're, we're sticking, we're sticking with that. Uh, you can email the show, mail at bbc.co.uk. Uh, so let's talk about Winchester. Let's. Uh, Mark will do the review uh, in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to speak to Ella Mirren. However, first of all, a clip featuring Jason Clark as Dr Eric Price and Dame Helen as Sarah Winchester. They want me to reconstruct the rooms that they died in. Then they can enter our world. The trouble is I don't always know who it is I'm speaking with. It it could be some innocent bystander or a victim of a crime or someone else. Who else, Mrs. Winchester? Last night, a spirit more powerful than any I've encountered endangered my family. Who are you? Doctor. Who do you see in this room? At this moment, just you. Only me. And that's a clip from Winchester, which stars Dame Helen Mirren. Dame Helen, good afternoon. How are Hello. you? 
Very Don't nice call me Dame Helen. Well, I always think it's... It's always a bit, you know, it's, a, it's, for, it's for what's lovely in certain circumstances, yes. like when I'm getting on to British Airways and they say, <laughs> welcome Dame Helen. Okay. <laughs> but, um... Well, I always think it's a bit like royalty in as much as I always think it's quite good. You use the title first and then you can be slightly more casual depending on how that goes down. Yes, it's funny. In America, they all say Dame Mirren, which, of course, is completely wrong. Completely wrong. It sounds sort of like a pantomime dame. <laughs> but... <sorry>. Um... <laughs> Okay. But I don't like to correct them because, it's you know, I don't want them to feel awkward. It is funny that it's only the first name. I don't quite know why that is, but... No, well, let's... I'll just say Helen then. Uh, just say okay. Helen, yes. Anyway, welcome to the programme. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so Winchester, it's a one-word one title. You are Sarah Winchester. There's a Winchester house. Just to explain who you are and where you fit in with this story. Well, Sarah Winchester is, is a person from real life. She built a place called the Winchester House. She was the widow of an inheritor of a part of the Winchester fortune. So she became very, very wealthy on the very tragic death of her young husband and then became a recluse and started building this extraordinary house that still exists in San Jose. Originally, it was way out in the countryside, surrounded by olive groves. Now Silicon Valley has overcome it, and it's sort of in the middle of a very sort of upmarket shopping street. But it still exists. You can visit it. And it is the most extraordinary edifice. She built 24 hours a day, seven days a week for over maybe 30 years. So building, tearing down, building, tearing down. Um, half of the house was destroyed in the great San Francisco earthquake. Um, but as I say, it still exists. And it, it is a very extraordinary warren of strange little rooms and staircases that literally lead nowhere, that doors that lead into the back of cupboards that lead into other rooms. It's just a very, very peculiar house. And many legends grew up around Sarah Winchester when she was building this house. And one of the legends, which is the legend that we go with in the movie, was that she was building the house to placate the spirits of the people who had been killed by the Winchester rifle. I think she did feel quite... She was obviously a very kind-hearted person and there is a theory that she was a spiritualist. Whether she was or not, I don't know. I could buy the um, the idea that she was racked with guilt with the fact that her massive fortune came on the backs of people's deaths. And she's in mourning, isn't she? So she's she's lost in mourning. Her she did lose. This is also true. She lost her young daughter. Um, you know, very young. Her daughter died at the age of two. Her firstborn child, and then very shortly afterwards, as I said, her her young husband died. Uh, so she was very suddenly bereft. She went from a you know, wealthy young wife with a beautiful husband and a young daughter to someone with no one. Her, she lost her husband to, to tuberculosis, which happened a lot in those days. Yes, so she became a recluse, I think, in, in her sadness. Uh, all of that is absolutely accurate. What genre would you say this? Is this I would say this is a ghost movie, a ghost story. Ghost story People rather are calling than a horror it a, story. Rather than a horror story, yes. I would say it's a real old-fashioned ghost story. I would hope in the genre of the great Japanese ghost story movies, you know, um, the Japanese culture, which is so into the, not the worship of the dead, or to a certain extent the worship of your ancestors, have a, a very visceral 
understanding or feeling about about ghosts, and that has been reflected in you know great great ghost yes. movie, ghost uh, movies coming it, out of Japan. And it, it's obviously the perfect place to set a film because it. I mean, it's claimed to be, of course, one of the many houses that claims to be the most haunted house uh, in the world. So that's the angle that you're going down. And I can't imagine anywhere that is more suitable, unless you go to Hampton Court or somewhere, you know, the, because of the legends which are there. And oh, no, absolutely. It's, you know, much more than Hampton Court because of the, the basic insanity of the house, you know. Although I have to say, being in the house, you do feel, because it's such an extraordinary environment, it's like a crazy house. You know, in my um, hometown, my wonderful hometown of Southend-on-Sea, we used to have a little fun fair, and in the little fun fair, Peter Patton's playground, was a, a thing called the crazy house. It's strange mirrors at the ends of corridors and, you know, things all went at funny angles. And it is rather like going into the Winchester house. It's mm. a little bit like going into a crazy house. You say, so you say that there's an insanity to the house. Might she have been insane? or do you th- I think... I think she might have. I, I mean, one thinks she had to have had some sort of major psychological mental breakdown. But at the same time, she was very beloved and the people who worked with her never abandoned her and and were utterly loyal to her for many, many, many years. So you cannot deny that there was an obsession there, you know, an absolute driving obsession that never that never stopped for 20 or 30 years. I would imagine a great character for you to get your teeth into because some people have an awareness maybe of the story. We'll certainly know about the Winchester rifle. Some people have visited the house, but we don't really know anything about her. So it's like a, a blank it's canvas. It's a bit of a you. blank canvas. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I I took it on board because I... I love the idea of doing a ghost story. I don't believe in ghosts. I have to rapidly add myself. But I do believe in houses having atmospheres. And strangely, that I found the atmosphere in the Winchester house to be very benign. It may well be haunted, but there is a there is a sweetness about it. It doesn't have a feeling of cruelty or harshness. It, 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 there's something quite sweet about it. And actually, this debate is at the heart of the movie because Jason Clark plays the uh, the doctor who's coming to the psychiatrist to come and work out whether, in fact, she you is are crazy. Yes. yes, no, yes. absolutely, That's and right. whether she should be taken away from having a say on the board of the Winchester rifle. There is a line in in the film which says, you know, to, it's unconscionable to basically sell death to make a profit. I do feel like that myself. I did wonder watching the film whether I thought okay this is interesting it's got like an anti-gun message it's got an anti-gun and then by the end of the movie I wasn't quite so sure whether there was an anti-gun no I don't think it's necessarily an anti-gun message although I think it's well I guess ultimately it is because it's it's an anti-selling arms to make profit I think that that's the you know that is the the pain of Sarah Winchester of course, she could have given her fortune away. <laughs> she chose not to do that. That's what I feel. If there is any kind of a message in the movie, it could be that. Yeah. And very much an American story, obviously, and all filmed in Australia. <laughs> yes. Well, we had two, which is the first time I, in, in my experience, well, ever, it's unheard of, um, identical twin brothers of the directors, the Spirig brothers. And that was an experience yeah, as well. You know, that, that added to the sort of vibe of the whole thing. They were wonderful. Yes, it was all... Well, we replicated the house in Melbourne, basically. So you actually hadn't seen the San Jose house 
until after you'd finished filming? No, we did shoot a little bit there, just a a little tiny exterior of the house we shot there. Most of it we shot in Melbourne. What have you made, Helen, of the, what's the right word, convulsion, uh, revolution in the entertainment industry, uh, which has followed in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein revelations? It seems to be... I think it's been a long time coming. Mm. A lot of it, I have to say, I was I was personally unaware of, but then I would be because I'm too old, you know, because this stuff happens to very young women. They say, time's up. I say, about time. <laughs> it's about time, time's up. It's taken a long time for us to get here. And I think the, the very positive element in it is that it spreads far beyond the extraordinary and appalling behaviour, as far as I can make out, of Harvey Weinstein and many others. The discussion has spread so much further, which I, that's what I'm so thrilled about. Mm. It is confrontation of why are there not more women in the stories? Why are there not more women's voices being heard telling the stories? The writers, the directors, the magma in the volcano has been, you know, angrily swirling around there for the last 20 or maybe 30 years. And finally, it's um, exploding out of the volcano. You said you were unaware of most of it, but you've had your own fair share of inappropriate comments. And many, many listeners' thoughts will have gone back to the Michael Parkinson interview, which I know was from a different era, but that kind of typifies a lot of the male reaction to actresses at the time. Yes, actress, actress stroke models. Always, yeah. uh, yes, no, absolutely. And um, But, you know, the person who got the flack after that interview wasn't Michael, it was me. <laughs> you know, I was sort of told off for being confrontational or rude. Oh, just in general. I can't remember if at the time there were any newspaper articles or anything or comments, but if there were any comments, it was really saying, you know, what an I was, not beloved Parky. And that's absolutely an indication of how difficult it is because I didn't think I was being radical or I was just saying it kind of how it was as far as I could see from my perspective of of the world and uh, myself and women and all the rest of it. You would never have asked me that question 10 years ago. You no, I, no, I don't, no, I don't think, I don't think I would. It, is the, it was the 1970s and maybe... The 70s, I think, were terrible for women and girls in my profession. What advice would you give to... And I'm using the word actress here just to make it absolutely specific. Normally, the word actor is perfectly fine. But what advice would you give to a young actress sort of thinking, OK, this is my industry, I want to set out here, I wonder how I should go about it? Play by your own rules. Just play by your own rules. And if your rules dictate one thing, go with that, if they dictate something else. But but make sure they're your rules, not someone else's. Next for you, uh, as far as I can see, is the Nutcracker in the Four Realms, is that...? No, there's another one. What's is it, it Anna? Uh, Anna, that's right, oh. yes, Anna, which is uh, another genre movie. I, do, I love genre movies. I love to be in them, I love to watch them, and then the Nutcracker. And, and definitely not the Queen. No, no, I don't think so. That's no, it. no. I mean, I, I admire that series. I think it's fantastic, and all the women who are going to play the Queen are going to be extraordinary. As um, you know, as as we've seen already with and Claire, Claire Foy, Foy, just picked up another award. She so she so deserves it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, and to my mind, true expression of her madge. But no, I you know go forward really. Amazing, still that the, the character of. Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, is an Oscar-winning role. 
Claire Foy does it. She's winning. The, the global fascination with her continues. Yes, it does, and and I think it because of the the complexity of of her her situation, her character within her situation, because her character is one thing, and then her situation is something else, and then the way Elizabeth Windsor, I call her, to take the queeny thing away, the way she that personality has negotiated and dealt with all of the incredible challenges she's had to deal with. It's that that makes an, it an extraordinary role. And that was what Claire, I thought, expressed so beautifully, really beautifully. Helen Mirren, Dame Helen Mirren, I'm going to go back there. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Steve. And that wasn't a joke, was it? I think I, I well I tell you I how I'm, it was a joke. I'm interpreting that is that she's aware of the love, love the show, show Steve. Steve joke, and she was what was funny. She was just running with it. What happens is she then left the studio, and then she yeah. came back in and she said, "Simon, could we just pose for a photo? Could we just a photograph for my Instagram?" Yeah. So I said, "Sure, yeah, absolutely." So it was, uh, I don't know. Okay, she was about to go and talk to Steve Wright, okay. and I th- that was clearly playing on her mind. Okay, and I took it in great humility. Well done. But anyway, thanks okay. to Dame Joan Collins for coming in. She's well certainly time. Winchester then. Well, I mean, it's, you know, such an interesting story. The idea of uh, this, this widow, we, there is a certain amount that we know, a certain amount that we don't know. You know, legend has it that she was told by a medium to move to the West Coast, although other people say her biographer says that's uh, not true. Um, the story about whether or not construction continued seven days a week, 24 hours a day for over 30 years, or whether that itself is an exaggeration, the involvement in the earthquake, uh, whether she was a medium, whether she was a spiritual, whether, you know, who knows? Was was she mad? Was she... So, so all these sort of lovely ambiguities. And then in that interview, uh, Dame Helen says, you know, it's like those Japanese uh, ghost stories. So we're thinking then, you know, get to Monogatari or Dark Water or, you know, films in which ghosts are there and they're real and they're every day and we're thinking of all that lovely ambiguity and that brilliant thing that you said about wow this looks like it's a, you know it's a movie and maybe it's raising ideas of you know gun laws and guilt about guns and all those things all and you know and it's and and she she brilliantly it, it sort of it makes you think that what we're going to be looking at is something like, you know, the original version of, of The Haunting, Robert Wise's The Haunting. Actually, what you get is Jan de Bont's The Haunting. I mean, with all that ambiguity that's spoken about, it's just... I mean, I like the Spirit Brothers. I thought they, they did a very interesting job with Jigsaw and they've got uh, creative, uh, you know, ideas and influences and all the rest of it. And the film itself is an absolute... Just... Quite, 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 boo, quite, 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 boo, quite, quite. Any ambiguity? Okay, so, oh, is she, you know, is she crazy or is she visited by spirits? Well, remember that scene in Poltergeist in which somebody says, you know, it's incredible. We put these cameras in and if you look at them over stop time, you see that a pencil moves its way all across the room. And they go, really? Look at this. They open a door and there are record players flying around and dancing mannequins. The whole movie is like that. It's, you know, mentioning it as a, like a fairground, right? It is a film that goes from the beginning. Oh, here's some ambiguity. No, are we worried about it? No, let's, let's, let's shoot guns at ghosts. Let's have every room in the house going boom, crash, bang. Let's every five minutes have a scary face go boom out of nowhere. Let's have uh, every character carve themselves such a thick slice of ham that there is no debate about whether or not, you know, oh, are they in touch with another world or are they crazy? It's just, you know, are they in pantomime or are they in music hall? It's a film which shouts so loudly at its audience from the very back of the stalls that I found my head starting to loll. So I had to be nudged in the arm very heavily by Alan Jones going, Gah! it's, I mean, 
it's not good. And it's not good in a way which is made worse by the fact that there's all this potential in this story about somebody building a house and consequently building and all the stuff and what do we know and what do we don't know? And then the film just goes, what we know is this works. dun da 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 bang dun da 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 bang dun da 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 boo dun da 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 oh dun da dun da da And you like, really? Oh, there's the scary face with the funny bit of a... It's... 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 It's rubbish. It's almost the William Tell overture that you were doing. It was. It's all over the place. And it's not, and crucially, no matter what else, it's not scary at all, is it? No, it's only scary. It's just, I mean, clearly there are jumps in it. Yes, there are jumps in the same way as somebody slamming a door behind you. Yes. Makes you go, oh, oh, like that. But it's not scary, is it? Is it? Is it? Is it understated in any way? Is it ambiguous no, in any way? Did no. you come out of it going, hmm? I wonder, was it the work of imagination or was it the work of spirits? Yeah, the answer is it was the work of spirits. They were like up. They were there. They were huge. They were tearing walls off. We were firing at them with a shotgun. It's all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, they did miss a trick, which I was trying to allude with Dame Helen or yes. Dame Joan, whatever, whoever Steve. it was. Who uh, okay? That there is a there was a feeling of an anti-gun message. You're thinking all this devastation has been caused mm. by look by these mm. rifles that lasted and, about ten minutes, and then they kind and of then they just they let it go. They let it go. They let it go so badly. Should we let that? Shall we let it go? We'll, we'll let it go yeah. just for the moment. Uh, anyway, we've got another hour of stuff, and I know what's going to be taking up a lot of the time. Paul Thomas Anderson was on last week. What are we going to be doing in the next We hour? are going to be reviewing Journey's End, and we are indeed going to be reviewing Phantom Thread. No definite article, please. Thomas Hebert has been here on the email. Yes. Uh, Mark and Simon, listening to your recent discussion uh, regarding a 15-year-old going to either Darkest Hour or The Post. Yeah. This was a father-son uh, dilemma. Okay. It made me want to write in to ask your opinion regarding my own son. Gregory is two. Okay. And we listen to you, or the talking, as he refers to <laughs> you, every morning on the way to the childminder. Uh, him and uh, childminder, him and school, me, because I'm a teacher. So the talking makes it sound almost like a, 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 like a demonic. It does, position. yes. The haunting. We took him to the cinema for the first time in December to see Paddington 2, and he absolutely loved it. He went and told everyone who would listen that Paddington has a red hat and a blue coat on the big TV. He now gets very excited whenever you two talk about Paddington. So if you read this out, you'll really make his day. Anyway, next week, it's my 31st birthday, says Thomas. And my wife Tanya and I would like to go to the cinema with Gregory to mark the occasion. OK. He's now going to give you a choice. I haven't seen either of the films that he's going to suggest, okay. but I know what the answer is. And the age is two. two. Wow. OK. So, all right. And okay. I know what the, uh, the right answer is, even okay. though I've seen neither of the films. Okay. Do we go and see Coco or Early Man? Greg has seen several Pixar films, but is also a massive fan of Wallace and Gromit, Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. My feelings are that Coco may be for when he's slightly older and perhaps the slapstick of Ardman may well be more suitable, but I'd appreciate your opinion. Obviously, Thomas, the answer is Early Man. OK, yes, I would say it is Early Man. Yeah, because it's... It's know. just... It's just you know, isn't just, it? Just because it's yeah, I mean, I just think it plays to to a broad. I mean, two is very young, but I'd say that does play to a broader audience. And Day of the Dead and all that kind of stuff might be maybe at the age of two, you might just want to wait uh, just a little bit. Uh, and before we get to uh, Phantom Thread, just one more uh, on the post which we were talking about uh, yeah. earlier, of course, as we have done for a number of weeks. It's just an interesting point. David Williams says, uh, my mum's cousin, who is called Garland Jr., was a liner-type operator at the Washington Post. 
and was probably working there when the events of the post were taking place. The presses were incredibly loud and apparently were horrible for people's hearing. Garland Jr. was born deaf, so the job was a perfect fit for him and he worked there for his entire career. I didn't see his name in the credits, but I like to imagine that one of the men typing frantically or scrambling in the press room was him. As a journalist, it was amazing to watch reporters of that generation cranking out stories without the benefit of spell check or the internet. Imagine that. And wow. The idea of having to crank out a story on a typewriter is incredibly stressful. Uh, David, thank you very much indeed. All the emails to mayo at bbc.co.uk. Something that's new and sparkling. So, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson came on the programme, it was last week, last right? Week, to yeah. talk about uh, Phantom Thread, uh, which is uh, his new movie with a score by Johnny Greenwood. And I should say that, um, I, as you know, I was just saying earlier on this week, I was doing, a, I was introducing the two of them on stage because they were doing a live performance of the score by Johnny Greenwood. I've been a huge fan of Johnny Greenwood's score for a long time, right back to when Johnny Greenwood was, was denied an Oscar nomination for There Will Be Blood back in 2008. Which we, I think which it was. we talked about in the end. Exactly, which was the most technical of technicalities. So, anyway, uh, Phantom Thread. Story is set in 50s London. Daniel Day Lewis is Reynolds Woodcock, who is the designer dressmaker at the House of Woodcock, which he runs with his sister Cyril brilliantly played by Leslie Manville, who I think is just, you know, just terrific. So she runs the business, basically. She tends to the books, but she also tends to the extraordinarily pernickety needs of Reynolds and his strange creative rituals. Rituals like breakfast must never be loud or interrupted, and if his breakfast doesn't go well, he can't get things right for the rest of the day. Things like... Aren't you a bit like that, though? <laughs> <laughs> things like um, that she... He he has women who are, who are his muses of whom he tires. And we find that very, very early on that she says, shall I tell so-and-so to leave? I'll give her such and such address. So we, we're immediately set up that there is a sort of cyclical habit here that he, he falls in love with women, he designs dresses for them, he tires of them, and then it's left to Cyril to, you know, to show them the door, taking the dress with them. So he's also obsessed with his mother, for whom he made a wedding dress whilst young. And there is a suggestion that the whole of the rest of his career has basically been repeating that, making a dress fit for his mother and looking for somebody who is somehow able to fill that particular void. He, he says at one point that he, he's been dreaming of his mother and saying her name out loud and then waking up, his cheeks wet with tears. And he's obviously in, in a funk. So he goes to the country where he meets uh, Alma, who is uh, serving in a hotel in which he goes to have the most expansive of breakfasts. Extraordinary and, breakfast. And it's, it's wonderful. If you've ever seen the... Um, uh, the adaptation, the television adaptation, the omnibus television adaptation of, it's called Whistle and I'll Come to You, but it's based on the M.I. James O. Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, in which Michael Horden explains that there are more things in philosophy than there are in heaven and earth whilst enjoying the most magnificent breakfast. Wow. I think it's, it's kind of on a par with that. So he goes there and he sees Alma, played by Vicky Creeps, and immediately he feels some kind of connection. He says at one point, I feel like I've been looking for you for a very long time. Next thing, she becomes his muse. He is making dresses for her. But inevitably and cyclically, he starts to tire of her. Cyril is right. Cyril is always right. It's not because the fabric is adored by the clients that Cyril is right. It's right because it's right. Because it's beautiful. Maybe one day you'll change your taste, Alma. Maybe not. Maybe you have no taste. 
Maybe I like my own taste. Yes, just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop. So you can hear from that the kind of the the brittle nature of some of the line, particularly of Daniel Day Lewis's accent, which is pitched somewhere between sort of clipped Brit and timeless Transylvanian. And there is a, certainly a hint of the vampiric about him, the way he sits with his kind of insect-like limbs curled up around him, the way in which his, his face has got a sort of slightly ghoulish, almost skull-like appeal to it. We see him at the beginning in his dressing ritual, sort of getting himself ready. And it, it, it did remind me a little bit, weirdly enough, of uh, Gary Oldman in Dracula. And also a bit of uh, Colin Firth. Uh, oh, okay. The Tom- oh, it's just fine. You said, yeah, as a single man, and then to some extent that would refer back to things like, you know, American Gigolo. Oh, I can't imagine Richard Gere doing this from this. Anyway, so what we have here is a tale of an impossible artist. So it's it obviously draws influence from The Red Shoes, and there's a we see quite a lot of Powell and Pressburger in it. It's also the tale of somebody stepping into someone else's shoes. So we think, for example, of, you know, Hitchcock and Rebecca and that kind of you know the strange going into somewhere which is which becomes a prison and it's also a tale of a cracked masochistic love affair which immediately reminds me of punch drunk love and i should say that i think this is paul thomas anderson's best film since punch drunk love and you know how much i love punch drunk love i think this is now on a par with it and i'm teetering on the edge of whether or not this is actually my favorite paul thomas anderson film whether it's dislodged punch drunk love which i have loved for a long time and I, in a way, I won't know until I've let it settle. But I've now seen Phantom Thread, as I said, four times. And every time I see it, I see more in it. What I love about it is Punch Drunk Love was a film which referred very often to uh, to Popeye. You know, they had that use of that, he needs me, he needs me, he needs me, you know, which is referring specifically to the film adaptation of Popeye with Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall. Yep, OK. OK. This is absolutely laced through with threads from fairy tales. So... There is curse of there is talk of curses and superstitions. The superstition of the wedding dress that he says very early on when he was making the wedding dress, his nanny wouldn't help him do it because there are all these superstitions that if you touch a wedding dress, you won't get married. And in the end, he said his sister uh, helped him to do it. And Alma says, and, and what happened to her? Did she get married? And he says, no. And then we learn that one of the things that he's been doing since an early age is stitching things into the dresses that he makes. He says you can hide things in the lining of garments, messages, coins, little things. And one of the messages that he puts into the lining of a garment is never cursed. He talks at one point about the house of Woodcock being uh, being a dead house, somehow being cursed. So this thing about curses recurs time and time again. There are allusions to Bluebeard and to the Brothers Grimm. There are journeys off into forests where mushrooms, strange mushrooms grow and are harvested by a heroine who has you know, more than a touch of the princess in the tower or Little Red Riding Hood or you know Hansel and Gretel or any of those stories. The camera, which incidentally, the film doesn't have a credited director of photography um, because the people that, that Paul Thomas Anderson usually works with weren't available. A lot of people have said that he's the cinematographer. He's quite clear he's not the cinematographer. He was basically marshalling a camera crew, working with the people that he's you know worked with, you know grips and camera operators and all that sort of stuff. And as a team, they worked to create this cinematography. But the camera circles around these staircases that give you the impression of an ivory tower, and then at other times take you out into these strange forests. You know the Beauty and the Beast analogy is there. 
And then beneath it all, you have this wonderful score by Johnny Greenwood, which invokes, you know, Passionate Friends or Brief Encounter, throwing back to those period pieces recorded very specifically in a way to make it sound, I mean, you know, muted piano and then these soaring romantic strings, surging cyclical themes, all of which absolutely hark back to a to a bygone age which again put you in that thing of you know the magic of cinema those those classic influences but also i think evoke fairy tales something mythical something magical and so therefore so you have on the surface a film which is about a really prickly difficult man who is defined by his rituals who is absolutely intolerant and intolerable and then you have this other layer underneath, which is that it's referring to all these other movies, which I love anyway. And then m- more sort of importantly than that, the whole thing has a fairy tale charm, which every time I've seen it has been more. I mean, the first time I saw it, I noticed it somewhat. By the fourth time, it just seemed to me that it was it was being you know declared from the rooftops. And on top of all that, it's really funny. And it's one of the things which it's hard to understand how it can be as funny as it is. Partly it's funny because the dialogue is, you know, paper cut sharp. And the the way in which it's delivered by the cast, and the cast are brilliant. I mean, it's a really, really, you know, great central cast. These lines are delivered with that kind of, you know, lemon juice sort of bite, that zing. Leslie Manville, brilliant. At one point she says, I don't want to hear it because it hurts my ears. And it's just, you know, and when I when I saw it with an audience, they were really enjoying the laughter. They were really, really enjoying the But there is this very, very sort of strong sense of, uh, of sadness. It is very much a ghost story. You know, Dame Helen Mirren was talking earlier on about Winchester and saying it's a ghost story. It's not a ghost story. That's not a ghost story. That's a shouty fairground ride of a movie. If you want a ghost story, this is it. This is properly a ghost story. I mean, that phantom thread, which incidentally, you know, refers to a repetitive motion that goes on after seamstresses had worked, you know, day and night making things that their, their, their hands would continue to repeat those motions, a phantom thread. But also maybe it refers to the lock of his mother's hair that he has sewn into the, the breast of his jacket. The lovely thing is that the more you delve through the folds of this thing, the more it has to give you. The, the funnier the jokes become, the, the sadder the sadness becomes, the more spooky and wonderfully supernatural those uh, those elements become, which you know, which includes sort of fever dream apparitions of this world and the next. So, I thought, I thought it was terrific, and I I think it continues to be more terrific. I love the I, the score is just great. The score is great. Johnny Greenwood is nominated for it, Oscar nominated for it. I don't. I think he's got a very very hard task because it's a that's a very strong category this year. Um, I went all a strong category this year, and I don't, I'm not even joking. We are 15, basically. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was great, and it, it caught me in its spell. It kind of wove this web around me, and I just was held by it. The, 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 you talk about the fairy tale. I wonder. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but there are okay. a couple of sequences in his car, which is a, a beautiful yeah. car, and the way that is shot is feels as though it's part of that fairy tale it's yeah. not very unusually it doesn't yes. feel like the way it normally a, you know a conversation in a car would normally be taken there's one sequence in a car which is very obviously a reference to stanley kubrick's a clockwork orange when they're driving through the darkened country lane and the camera is looking into the the illuminated car and that's very clearly a reference to the durango 95 thing from but the scenes that you're talking about like when when 
either when the camera is following the car and it's an unusual car down these strange windy lanes or when they're exactly when they're talking that they seem to be in some kind of almost dreamy world and what's really interesting is that when you consider how crisp and clean the lines of the images are and indeed the lines of the editing i mean it's a really well edited film that it has that dreaminess that that otherworldliness that ghostliness that is so sorely lacking from winchester uh, Barnaby Blackburn. Yes. This film is intoxicating. From the moment we're introduced to Reynolds and his house of Woodcock, the camera exuberantly sweeping up the staircase as his staff arrive for the day, as though physically lifted by Johnny Greenwood's sumptuous score, we too are swept up by the gorgeous filmmaking that ensues. I love this. Phantom Thread is undoubtedly a love story, but it divorces itself from the conventions and clichés that so many others fall foul of. There are moments in the film, the New Year's Eve scene party with our friend from Blackpool, who we were mentioning <laughs> earlier, uh, when the director could have created a typical grand gesture of love, but instead he is restrained enough to create a moment more honest and reflective of real relationships. Several other moments throughout the film had this realism to them, one argument scene in particular. Vicky Creeps as Alma is a revelation and Leslie Mandel yeah, great, is spectacular as Woodcock's no-nonsense sister. If this really is... Daniel Day-Lewis's final performance, What a Way to Go. This, out of all his glorious performances, is perhaps his most nuanced. Woodcock's precision with his dressmaking is mirrored by the precision he takes in constructing and delivering his sentences, considered and at times incredibly cutting. I hadn't expected to laugh so much as I did in this film, far surpassing the six-laugh test, always yeah, really does. as a result of one of Woodcock's sharp-tongued retorts or marvellous use of efforty jeffities <laughs> as they didn't say in the 50s. No, they didn't say that. Jack in Hackney, having seen the trailer, I had steadied myself for a two-hour-plus intellectual runaround of brooding character study no, and no, meandering no. narrative, so I was pleasantly surprised by the way in which the film balances levity and wit with the more sinister aspects of Paul Thomas Anderson's back catalogue. A perfect mix of tragic comedy of punch-drunk love and the unsettling cultish undercurrent of the master. It's an intoxicating charm offensive with a trio of faultless performances and it feels like an instant classic, further proof that Paul Thomas Anderson is operating on another level to his contemporaries. And if this is to be Daniel Day-Lewis's swan song, I can't imagine a better way to leave the stage. Uh, Luke Immins, aged 18, medium-term listener, first time writing in a... I write this whilst guzzling down a microwaved potato with tuna and in a rush to leave for work, so we'll cut straight to the chase. Phantom Thread touched, affected, fascinated and enveloped me in a way that no other mainstream film has done in recent times. Every single moment of silence in the film that is present here seemed to exude a dense yet supple atmosphere that suffocated me in a most pleasurable manner. I must point out that whilst indeed the film is very funny... Many of the audience members continued to laugh at every line delivered with gusto as though it were a Michael McIntyre gig. Whereas I'm of the mind that as the film progresses through to, through to its second and into its third act, the humour becomes far less a means by which to evoke laughter as a means by which to disturb, shock and even horrify. Yeah. Thankfully, the laughter that shook the hall only served to create an even more jarring atmosphere, serving the film exceptionally well. Uh, one more from Jack Stoker. Uh, in Wellington, New Zealand, but originally from the University of Manchester. For you, Very good. I've just left a sold-out screening of Phantom Thread, and as a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan, it is no small amount of relief I can say how much I love the film. I can remember few cinema experiences, PTA or otherwise, in which I've sat completely engrossed and enraptured by what was on the screen. 
I feel Phantom Thread is perhaps the least technically ambitious of Anderson's films since Hard Eight, but not any less beautiful than anything in his oeuvre. Instead of my eyes straying around the meticulously crafted frame to drink in the detail, I found it impossible to look away from Daniel Day-Lewis or Vicky Creeps as I was so utterly bowled over by their respective performances and shared chemistry. All in all, this might not be Anderson's most technically brilliant or even his best film, but I've never so immediately fallen in love with one of his films. As a stripped-down character study, it's almost perfect and I can't wait to see it again. Very good. Yeah, I mean, and it, believe me, every time it's just... Get, the, the highest praise I can give it is, for me, it's up there with Punch Drunk Love and you know how I feel about Punch Drunk Love. I think that, and also that, that use of the word precision in the dressmaking and precision in uh, was carried on to you mentioned his accent and we mentioned it last yeah time. yeah the way he speaks is so precise yes as though there isn't a single word or syllable or consonant which is and you also right. feel when you watch him making the dresses that he probably could make a dress it doesn't look like he's oh, acting he dressmaking it looks like he's gone away and become a master dressmaker well, we know how he likes to prepare for these he roles does. so i you know i bet you're absolutely right he, he can make a shoe he can make a dress he probably could now do you want to what else have you got there? should we do roman j israel it, yes, absolutely. Go okay, ahead. Fine. So this is a Denzel Washington has earned, I think it's his ninth Oscar nomination for this film, exactly 30 years after his first uh, Oscar nomination, which was for Cry Freedom back in 1988. So this is a strange tragicomic drama from uh, Dan Gilroy, um, who uh, was responsible for Nightcrawler. And Denzel Washington, he's very impressively schlubby as this kind of awkward savant lawyer. His mind is on one level like a steel trap. He remembers facts and figures. He is a fierce advocate for civil rights and activism, but he's no good with people. He's no good in court. So he's become the backroom backbone of uh, a law company where he's worked for years. But now change is coming. The doctors have concluded that William is in a permanent vegetative state. Well, you'll surprise him. Well, we'd like to believe that, but not this time. If the firm was stable, we'd have time to mourn, but it's not. And we don't. George has generously offered to take time from his busy practice to sort through the remaining cases and collect what's due. Well, I probably haven't had time to consider all the various ramifications of this. None of us have. I can't live on my accolades. Well, Lynn was hoping to give you and what's the receptionist's name? Vernita. Vernita Severance. But looking over the books, it just doesn't seem possible. I'll take over. <clears throat> no, you're not capable of continuing the practice. But, but, but I'll take over because in the architecture of this firm, I am a pillar. Yes, and Roman, I'd hope to reward you for that. Hope don't get the job done. What does that mean? That means hope don't get the job done. So suddenly he's out of work. He lives in a rundown apartment beset by construction noise. He blocks out the noise with headphones on which he listens to a classic soul soundtrack. He does his work on paper. He's been working for years on this vast sort of class action suit, which is to do with uh, the ramifications of plea bargaining and how you know cases don't go to trial. It's really important. He can't finish it on his own. And... But he needs money. He needs a job. And Colin Farrell's character, who you heard there, realises that he is very smart and realises that he may be very useful. And he offers him a job, which at first he doesn't want to take. He goes to an advocacy group where um, where he's told by Carmen Joga, who's terrific, incidentally, that he, he wants a job. But she says, but everybody here, everybody here is a volunteer. She asks him if he wants to uh, give a lecture. And he does. And only to discover that he's way out of step with uh, the current activist crowd. He's an old sexist, chauvinist dinosaur, as far as they're concerned. And so 
he decides, well, I'm fed up. I am fed up with uh, fighting battles. He says, I'm tired of doing the impossible for the ungrateful. And he decides to sell out. Now, this is not a plot spoiler because the film begins with him accusing himself of having turned his back on everything he believes in and then goes back a few weeks to see how we got to this point. It's a peculiar film. It's full of interesting ideas, and I like that thing about the balance of the the tragic and the comic. Um, It has sort of... It has very high ambitions and it has some outrageous dramatic conceits, only some of which bear creative fruit. One of the problems is that the time frame is pretty compressed and the transition that his character is meant to go through in a very compressed time frame sort of, you know... doesn't doesn't ring true in terms of its credibility. However, it's okay, it's a narrative construction and that's fine. It also, I think, loses its way as we get towards the final act. It's like it can't quite decide how to tie all of this stuff up. But that said, and again, this brings us back to the subject of uh, downsizing. I said downsizing was a film that, it, that that is a mess and didn't work for me satisfactorily because I felt like the filmmaker didn't know where it was going. Yet we've talked about Three Billboards as a film. You don't know where it's going, but you feel like you're in a really safe pair of hands. In the case of this, firstly, it is a very, very good central performance. Denzel Washington is really terrific in it. You do believe in his character, even when the drama isn't substantial enough to make that belief utterly ring true. And although the film doesn't ultimately hang together, although the film looks like a lot of different things fighting for central control of it, the comedy, the tragedy, the drama, the the politics, the the sort of particular social relations, it's held together by his performance. And even though I think in the end it doesn't work, I enjoyed watching it have a really good go because it felt like it was taking a certain amount of risks that I hadn't expected it to take. So... Although I think in the end it's a brilliant performance in a film which is an honourable misstep, I was never bored. I kept wanting to go with it. And the times that I did go with it, I found it entertaining, even though ultimately the end it was like, okay, it didn't add up to much, but it was fun getting here and I admire the ambition. Uh, We're going to do TV movie of the week uh, and also the one that's completely rubbish uh, for you to steer clear of in the next half hour. <laughs> and also, uh, some, there's still some good stuff to talk about. There is. There's still Journey's End starring our friend Paul Bettany. And our friend Toby Jones. Our friends. Together at last. TV movie of the week. Yes. Uh, su- suggestions here. David Roy, Lethal Weapon, is an odd one. It was always one of my favourite actioners from the 80s and 90s, but these days I'm always pulled out of it by how utterly incoherent the plot is. Luckily, <laughs> Mad Mel and Danny, you look younger with the beard, Glover's dynamic duo, antics, the superb action fight scenes, Gary Busey at his most Gary Busey, and the hilarious sax-engorged Michael Kamen score are still enough to distract from the fact that it makes very little sense. And it's also definitely a Christmas movie. Rupert David, he should just choose Batman Begins because I don't know how many times I watch that, but you can't tire of of it. It's that good. Well acted and directed. Hopefully he chooses... Uh, if he chooses it, he could also suggest Zack Snyder also watches it to understand how you make a Batman film. Was that nearly Lytotes? Almost it was nearly Lytotes. Yes, you're quite right. Paul Matthews, About Time is wonderful and my prediction for The Good Doctor's Choice, but personally I have to go for Cabin in the Woods. Now there's an interesting contrast in film. <laughs> a gem of a horror, horror movie that bears repeated viewings and brilliantly plays with some of the clichés and tropes that horror fans love to hate. Mike Roby says, in February we'd need... Mingella's sun-kissed ode to the 1950s Italy of his parents. Young new stars Damon Law, uh, Damon, comma, Law, Law. 
comma, also and Blanchett strutting. Famous Damon Law Blanchett. Yeah, strutting their erotic stuff around this lightened-up version of Highsmith novel as delicious as a Mingala ice cream. And Chloe Sacker, it has to be suffragette, to mark the centenary of the representation of the People Act passing into law next week. Kerry Mulligan, Helena Bonham Carter and Meryl Streep, name a better cast, would also make a great double bill with Made in Dagenham and or Bell, all films about political women fighting the good fight. I wonder if Suffragette will actually get reappraised and particularly get an American uh, release and get the recognition that it deserved there, which it kind of messed up because of the PR disaster, which we t- talked about previously. But maybe that's due to be reappraised yes. one day. But meantime, TV movie of the week. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to be super boring. I have two TV movies of the week, one of which is on this list and one of which isn't. The first one is I'm going to go for The Master, which is on at 10 past one in the morning on Saturday on Film 4, of course because I'm in a total Paul Thomas Anderson jag at the moment. And As I said, I mean, I think Phantom Thread is the best thing since Punch Drunk Love. The Master is always something that, you know, there are things in it that are great, there are things in it that are not so great, but it always bears uh, repeat viewing. And the other thing I'm going to go for is that on film for tonight, I think it's about half past ten, guess what they're showing? Is it The Sorcerer? No, it's Sorcerer. There's no definite article. I beg your pardon. Want to do that again? Is it Sorcerer? It is Sorcerer. Okay. Simon, you saw Sorcerer. Yes. What did you think when you saw Sorcerer? I I thought it was... I'm glad that you uh, lent me the DVD because it was quite gruelling in a good way. Okay. I have to say that the moment that you told me that you had seen Sorcerer was one of the moments in which I loved you the most. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to move on now because that's slightly weird. You had me at Sorcerer. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. This is our weekly warning about some of the worst films ever made, but Mm -hmm. still on television. This week's (laughs) Shockingly. Yes. This week's choice is uh, Green Street, about which Mark said, Frodo goes to football, dumb, a clunker, so bad. Evan Almighty, which Mark called tooth-grindingly not funny. Yogi Bear, which is, according to Mark, not cute, not funny, not clever, super bland, balance sheet bore. And The Last Airbender, which which Mark gawped in disbelief. I think, actually, that wasn't me. I think that that was James King. I thought it was a stinker as well, but I don't think I was on the week it was reviewed. Paul Derham, The Last Airbender is an abomination that utterly squandered its potential. The original three-season series is one of the finest quest narratives ever made, featuring a diverse range of exceptionally well-drawn, complex characters with satisfying arcs about the emotional development of moving from child to adult. Destroying something deep, complex, powerful, emotional and beautiful is probably the ultimate artistic crime. The film of The Last Airbender is guilty on all counts. Ian Lambert, the others appear to be actively terrible movies, which I'd been thankfully warned away from by the original reviews, but Evan Almighty made me curious to see how rubbish it was. Well, it's worse than rubbish. It's boring. It's a perfectly average, cookie-cutter Steve Carell comedy coming in between 40-year-old Virgin and Anchorman on box office. The only reason it was regarded as a terrifying flop is that some studio execs got carried away with the possibilities of computer-generated wildlife and ended up blowing $100 million on the production. Uh, and I'll just do one here. Steve Collier, there is one film on this list that almost defines vomit-worthy entitled blandness, <laughs> Bride Wars, one of the most sickeningly boring films I've ever seen, at least with the others. There are some vaguely entertaining premises and physical talent. Anyway, TV of the movie of the week. So TV of the movie so bad it's bad? Is? Green Street. Frodo goes to football. Yeah, it's a terrible film. It's a really, really terrible film. A really properly terrible film. it on? And I say that is on, you can avoid it at 10 past midnight on Saturday on ITV4. That's Friday night into Saturday morning. Apparently, I, I did say gawped in disbelief. I said it in print rather than on the air. I was off, but I was writing. 
It is rubbish of Last you, Airbender. Do you write this? I do write as well. I have a career as a writer, Simon. Ridiculous. I know. Uh, okay, Toby Jones time. Yeah, so uh, Journey's End. Um, the 1928 RC Sheriff play about the horrors of World War One, which has been filmed, I mean, before, you know, uh, severally filmed before. There's a famous uh, James Whale version isn't it, from 1930. So now Saul Dibb brings us this uh, latest version. Saul Dibb's previous film was Sweet Francaise, which I actually really liked, and I think it was underrated, didn't get quite the attention that it should have got. Um, this, I thought, was terrifically good. And, I mean, you know, I'm familiar with the, with the play and with the previous adaptations, but I thought this was really something. It has a very good ensemble cast, Paul Bettany, Sam Claflin, Toby Jones, Stephen Graham, Isa Butterfield. Um, and it, what it does really well is to capture the day-to-day sort of squalor and grind of and comradeship of life in the trenches in the towards the end of uh, World War One, and it does that thing which is really which is written into the play, but it's quite hard to capture dramatically and cinematically of the balance between, on the one hand, grinding boredom and you know living in a just really difficult, wet, miserable circumstances, and on the other hand, abject terror. So the balance between boredom and terror, which is very well captured. Here's a clip. We've got to make a raid, Uncle. Tomorrow afternoon, under a smoke screen, two officers, ten men. Who's going? You. Ah. And rally. Why rally? You to direct. Rally to dash in. Ah. You want me to tell him? I'll tell him. Tomorrow. Mm Mm-hmm. What time? Five o'clock. Bye. We've got to make a raid tomorrow afternoon. All of us? Oh, just me rally and tell the boys. Rally? Excuse me, sir. We only just got here. And you too? Me too. What a nuisance. Yes, that's what I thought. I think Paul Bettany, you can hear it just in the in you know, in that clip. What he's managing to do is to capture I mean it's funny, if you think that we now live in a post-Blackadder world in which there was that, you know, the, the best series of Blackadder was the series that was dealing with World War One, and it had that kind of thing about the clipped Britishness, the sense of desperation. If you remember the end of that uh, series of, mm-hmm. of Blackadder, which actually had the, you know, it was comedy and tragedy, and then there's the, the most uh, sort of tragedy and pathos-laden ending, which apparently they arrived at at pretty much the last moment. Um, and it's that's something which has been been sort of used and talked about so much that it's quite hard to breathe new life into it. But I think this does it really well. I think in that Paul Bettany performance, particularly, you hear it. The it's on the one hand, it's the the stiff upper lip. You know, I, th- I thought you'd say that. You know, the, the nuisance, but also the feeling that there is there is a real character there. There is a real character there facing you know facing an abyss. And I think that's really well done. I also think that the film does a brilliant job of cranking up the tension as we move towards, you know, the the raid, which is spoken of, and also the imminent attack, which is sort of, you know, hanging in the air, like a kind of poisonous cloud overshadowing everything. And during the course of the narrative, what happens is that, you know, a a very young character played by Butterfield comes in and he sees this person who he has idolised, who we used to know from school, played by Sam Claflin, Stanhope, and Stanhope by this point is completely rattled. He is riddled with regret and anger and bitterness and alcohol. 
And there is a very strong suggestion that what happens is that the young character looks at the, the character who's been in the trenches during the course of the war and sees this is what war does to you. This is what this is what this campaign does to you. This is what this life, this is what this existence does to you. But it does it in a very understated way. It doesn't do a it, it doesn't do a big thing of saying this is what the what what the you know the staging of this is saying. It just lets it breathe. Toby Jones has this brilliant role when he's playing. You know he's a He's preparing the food, and there's there's humour, there's laughter in there. When you know he says, "What, what, what have you know? What have we got for them? Cutlets? What kind of cutlets are they? Well, they're cutlets because he's not sure what the meat is. Someone else he's asked to identify food. He says, "What is it?" He says, "It's yellow," and so all that is in there. All that you know, that comradeship, that that there's a, there's a scene with one character tucking another character in at, at night. There's an intimacy. There is a, a sense of people really living their lives together in abject circumstances. And also that overwhelming sense of the extraordinary loss of life, the extraordinary sacrifice, the extraordinary, uh, you know, stamina of people in this circumstances, in those trenches. And I've never done this. I mean, so many people have talked about doing this, about going to France, going to see the trenches, some of which are still there. And people say, if you've ever been there, it's, it's you know, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And I thought that what the film managed to do was to create something that was that was moving and engaging and, you know, had that that wit in it, had that very British quality to it in those parts of the dialogue. And I really, particularly Paul Bettany for me, really sort of nailed that perfectly. But also it was, was harrowing and heartbreaking and cinematic. I mean, it's not a big budget film, but it's a film which which takes that you know that story which we've seen done in so many ways and puts it on the screen in a new way which is vibrant and moving and powerful and much more powerful than i expected i confess that i went in thinking well i know this story and i know this play and i you know and i but i did from almost the off it was like, okay fine this is bringing it to life this is making it immediate this is engaging and i thought it was i thought it was very powerful and, it, and a lot of that is down to very solid ensemble cast uh, Pete Allen, who's in Walton on Thames, yeah. is not just a long-term listener, yeah. or a first-time emailer, yeah. or the winner of a hostess trolley at the Forty Second Street Christmas Party, <laughs> Drury Lane, nineteen eighty-six. Okay, but he is the director of the R.C. Sheriff Trust. Oh, okay, which is a small arts charity in the little borough of Elmbridge, uh, set up through the will of Mr. Sheriff. Right, and Pete says, Please "I thought it might." I thought it my duty to drop you a line yeah. about the new adaptation of Journey's End. I was fortunate to attend a preview screening before Christmas. I was incredibly impressed with it. Oh, good. From the masterclass in acting by the whole cast to the incredible score, it is very moving, affecting interpretation of Sherry's play. Saul Dib's direction brilliantly captures the intimacy of the play without making it stagey, as well as the tension... Yes, leading... absolutely, without making it stagey. Exactly so. ...leading up to the final attack. Hopefully the film will help to put Sheriff back in the public eye. In his autobiography, he tells the story of someone coming up to him at an event towards the end of his life and saying how much they'd loved Journey's End, but why hadn't he written anything else? He is so associated with the play that it is nearly always forgotten that he did have quite a successful career as a playwright and novelist, but even more so as a screenwriter, penning some of Hollywood's greatest films, The Invisible Man, The Four Feathers, Goodbye Mr Chips, That Hamilton Woman, one of Churchill's favourites, 
Odd Man Out, and most famously, The Dam Busters. He also wrote a great draft script for a film about Dunkirk. I never knew he did Dam Busters, never knew that at all. Journey's End will, of course, be what he is most remembered for, however, and this new film version is a fantastic testament to his writing. And, of course, Simon Reen's adaptation of the script and to the memory of the soldiers that Sheriff fought alongside uh, at Passchendaele. And if anyone wants a sequel, uh, Sheriff wrote one, and they should keep an eye out on the trust during this 25th, uh, 25th anniversary year. So. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, I'm very, I'm, I'm very glad because I said I, I didn't know you were going to read that. Did you email know that Arcee Sheriff wrote the screenplay for the Dan Buster? I didn't, and but as I was going to say, I didn't know that you were going to read that email out before I did that review. And no, it, so, so it sounded like I'd kind of set it up. No, you had, but no I, I had literally had no idea at all. So I'm very, very glad about that. Uh, Pete, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, it's nine minutes to four o'clock. What else is out? Den of Thieves, um, which is the new film by. <laughs> oh yeah, this is the one. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, uh, and it's directed by uh, Christian Gudegast, whose previous credits include a screenwriting credit on uh, London Has Fallen. Uh, you remember we, how much you loved so much, how much we enjoyed uh, London Has Fallen. So uh, the story begins uh, with a bunch of things which tell us that uh, LA is the bank robbery uh, capital of the world. More banks robbed here than anywhere. More banks, you're be- better, you know, but than anywhere else. Apparently, uh, there's a heist every forty-eight minutes. Moreover. We are in a world in which police and thieves are somewhat... In, in the street? In the, that's right. Fighting the nation with their guns and ammunition. Yeah. But they're also indistinguishable. Stop me if you've heard this one. Gerard Butler is the... Well, he's not so much the bad lieutenant as the the obnoxious lieutenant. He turns up to work hungover. He eats donuts at crime scenes. He smokes and drinks too much. He, you know, he carouses and behaves appallingly to his uh, wife. His home life is falling apart. It's no surprise. I think, actually, we're supposed to feel sorry for him when his wife serves him with divorce papers. But frankly, I, you know, I was with her all the way. Meanwhile, uh, Pablo Schreiber is Merriman, who is the the kind of the, the head of this uh, criminal crew, who are planning a a raid. At the very beginning, there is uh, a raid in which they appear to have stolen an empty armoured vehicle. That is the the, the donut uh, scene in which uh, Gerard turns up and eats the donuts. No one can quite figure out why. You know, why on earth would they steal an empty truck? Uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who was uh, so great in Straight Outta Compton, um, and Ingrid Goes West as well, is the sort of schlubby bartender come driver who the cops realise is probably connected with some of the people they're looking for, so they decide to bring him in, smack him around the head, and ask him some tough questions. Do you know what this means? It means I am a member of a clique. It's kind of like being in a gang. Sort of like a gang, only we have badges, which means you are done. He ain't lying. Let me ask you this. Okay. Do we look like the types who'll arrest you? Put you in handcuffs, drag you down to the station? Hmm? I'm asking you a question. No, not at all. Right, exactly. We just shoot you. It's less paperwork. So, on the one hand, it is basically everything you... It's what you wanted. It's a remake of Michael Mann's Heat by the screenwriter of London Has Fallen with Gerard Butler as Al Pacino. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, it also rips off usual suspects, driver, point break, French connection to some extent, and as we said before, bad lieutenant. It sounds terrible. It isn't. At least it's not it's not it's not entirely terrible. There are things about it which are quite interesting. 
For one thing, despite the fact that he has on his CV the uh, screenwriting credit for London Has Fallen, Gudegast, if that is indeed how you pronounce the name, turns out to be a decent enough moody director. Um, it's working with Georgia locations, but he works around the LA setting quite nimbly, takes time with the story, has sort of, you know, m- decent enough fun with taking a B-movie premise and turning it into something that feels a little bit more than that. Uh, O'Shea Jackson is really, really good. I think actually he's the star of the film. In many ways, he's the most interesting character. You believe in him, you sympathise with him, you're drawn into his confidence, which is absolutely central. The problem, at least for me, was I couldn't get beyond Gerard Butler being Gerard Butler. I mean, I think we're meant to sort of secretly admire his obnoxious methods in the same way that you would admire... Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle in French Connection, or you know, you you you, you sort of you you think okay, well they're tough and they're they're just as bad as the criminals, but on the other hand they're getting the results. In this case, Big Nick, which is his character, you know, when his wife asks him to leave, you think yeah, fine, that's I'm completely with you. So in many ways, it's it's an odd film. I I think Butler is doing his best in it, and it, it is arguable that the point is his character is so obnoxious that you're meant to simply feel that's right, he is completely obnoxious and I have no time and I'm finding him very grating. And I think that is arguable. The film itself is recycling riffs that we have all seen done a million times before and frankly, you know, in better, more high-caliber ways. But I kind of enjoyed the setup for the heist. I thought that it was attempting to broaden its canvas slightly more than before. It's certainly a change of gear from some of the absolutely, you know, knuckle-headed vehicles that we've seen Gerard Butler in before. So while I wouldn't say it's good, but I'd say it's not bad, and there were moments in it and individual performances in it that kind of worked and kind of clicked, despite just how fantastically cliche-ridden the setup and the dialogue is. So a bit of a, what do they call it? As you call it, a curate's Curate's egg. egg. A bit of a curate's egg. Yes, Although, frankly, on the you know on the on the evidence of some of the players' past movies, a curate's egg is higher than we might have expected. Well, maybe it's a contender for film of the week. I mean, between that and Phantom Thread, let's see. You're just a couple of minutes away from that decision. What else can you fill our gap? Okay, let's very quickly in that case do Macala, which is. I suppose best described as a non-fiction drama. It's been called a doc-fiction hybrid, a film in which a non-professional actor plays a fictional variation of himself um, from Emmanuel Grau, who made Bovines and 300 Souls. It won a Grand Prix at the Cannes Critics... Cannes... Cannes Critics Week. The Cannes Cannes Critics. The Cannes Cannes Critics Week. So at its centre is a Congolese charcoal maker, Kabwita Kasongo. And the film is about the strange harsh, oddly beautiful existence that he has. It begins, with almost no explanation, with a scene of a very, very thick tree, really thick tree. Um, Kabuta turns up and he starts to hack at it with a machete the, it, or an axe. It makes almost no impression. This tree is enormous. He continues to hack away at it. This is Nothing's going to happen. Over the course of you know look, what looks like a day, he starts to make an indentation. The indentation becomes a trench. The trench becomes a gap in the tree. And then finally the tree falls. It's a Herculean task. He then sets about cutting up the tree, putting it all together in a pile, which is then covered with mud to make an outdoor oven and then to make the oven hot and to get fire going in it. And this every step of this this extraordinary enterprise would defeat most of us. 
It turns out he's uh, 28 years old. He lives um, in the southern province of Katanga. He wants to build a house for his wife and his children to do this. He has to earn money. And the way he can earn money is to make charcoal, which is the trade that he knows. But what the film manages to do is to kind of create this poetic sense of this story of somebody involved in a Herculean task because once he's made the charcoal he then has to take it to market which is 30 miles away and he has to take it on a bike in which you feel the the weight of this extraordinary burden that he's carrying and the film becomes kind of mythical sort of timeless involving like spellbinding it is a story of on the one hand extraordinary endurance on the other hand it's a very simple story about somebody attempting to achieve a simple universal goal but also a portrait of somebody doing something that is almost unimaginably tough. Uh now this has been a something else production for BBC Radio 5 Live next week Rachel Vice and Colin Firth are going to be on which will be uh, very exciting yes. to have them on together talking about the mercy. So now we're merely seconds away from the end of the program and from Mark saying Phantom Thread. So Mark what is our Movie of the week. Yeah, The Phantom Menace, that's it. Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace. That would be a turn up for the book. Phantom Thread. Well, Mark, can I just say how much I've enjoyed the last couple of hours? Have you? Yeah. That's great. Good. Can can I ask you, do do you... What? Do you love Phantom Thread? Well, I've I've only seen it the once. Yes. But I really, really liked Phantom Thread. I think maybe when you've seen it four times, you can start start to have a love affair with it. But we've only had one date. No, sure. And that was was, hugely impressive. Okay. Uh, And I didn't know at all what I was going to expect, what was coming along. Yeah. As as you tend not to with Paul Thomas Anderson. And forgive me for asking this. Have you seen Punch Drunk Love? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Okay, can I, it's the shortest. Is something else I've got to watch. I've got such a long list of things I have to watch. Simon, oh. you present the nation's flagship film program. I know, and I'm keeping up to date with all the new releases. Yeah, I know, but how many times do you give me a hard time? About, oh, you haven't seen that because it wasn't pressed. Well, you're the you film critic. It I'm just the host. I know, but it's uh, what I was about to say was the whole thing with Punch Drunk Love is it's Paul Thomas Anderson's shortest film. Yes. If I lent you a Blu-ray of it, a wonderful Blu-ray of it, which yes. is really yes, beautifully I will. mastered, would you? Because it, I, I do think, and I'm not just saying this, I think they are a really interesting... Yes, I will. What's the word for t- diptych? Diptych? Pair. Pair is Brace. Fine. Brace. A brace of films. A brace of films. I'll watch them. That's fine. And they sort of I said yes, Mark. I'll watch it. All right. Okay. Yeah, okay, fine. Great. Cool. You bring it in and... I'll watch. bring it in next week. Love and, it. And can you next week bring back... All don't, the, so don't say what it is, but can all, you the, all that stuff, all that the swag, stuff. the swag uh, that I've got. Laura is twenty three and she's in Germany. Uh, is it, there's a couple of things about going to the movie on your own. Now, okay, I would think you're very well uh, equipped to answer this question. Yes, Laura in Germany. I'm one of no doubt a staggering number of German wittertainees for whom the much lauded three billboards opened in cinemas just last week. I really want to go and see it, but having recently moved to a new city, I haven't yet found any friends who would be willing to accompany me. Oh, well, I thought, might as well take myself on a date then. But when I went online to book my ticket, I was suddenly faced with a dilemma. As a solitary cinema goer, where do I sit? Do I choose an aisle or wall seat to be be as far out of the way as possible? How many seats do I leave between myself and the next person, considering most cinema goers come in pairs or groups? Am I allowed to snatch one of the highly sought-after centre seats at the risk of inconveniencing said pairs or groups. Since this particular screening is going to be an English-language screening on a Friday afternoon, I'm not too worried, but it might be a different story once the next Marvel movie rolls around. Any advice you can give me to help solve this conundrum would be much appreciated. Well, firstly, I am completely phobic about anything other than an aisle seat. 
I can't, I, I, I don't do trapped seating. So when you say um, a much sought after centre seat, even if I'm in a cinema and it's empty, I won't sit in a centre seat. I will sit in an aisle seat. I mean, you know, if, if I'm in a screening room, uh, like for example, the, uh, you know, the universal screening room, lovely set up brilliantly. I have to sit in the back far right hand corner because there is that one chair that's on its own. But what if Laura isn't quite so, I mean, I don't know what you put that down to where you, uh, it's, it's, it's less it's obsessive. It's obsessive compulsive behaviour, but I have to do it. But it's I, you know, so for me, the ideal seat, if you had anywhere in the thing would be as far away from everybody else as possible and on an aisle and ideally on an aisle that someone won't sit behind you and rustle or kick your seat someone won't sit in front of you and therefore so, it, so this is like back to booking about eight seats what with you that in the was middle. what we figured out at one point wasn't it was yeah. that that was the only person well, i hope that it. helps laura but i suspect do, where do where do you sit in a cinema anywhere oh you generally i i, I quite like the aisle because i've got long legs but yeah. uh, so i'm very happy to sit on the aisle as well the aisle thing started for me when i was when i was a kid because it used to be that um if you went into a cinema the, the, the cinemas were all smoking, with the exception of the seats to the left of the left-hand aisle. That was so, I mean, that was so useful, wasn't it? If you were yeah, exactly, it was so great because you know there was no smoke would go in that bit, and but so I would always sit on the aisle seat because that was as near as you could be to central without being in the smoking area. And I just, it just, I, you know, I lead with my right eye. I have to do that. And we should say to younger podcasters that this is not so long ago that you could smoke in the cinema, but you had to be on the left-hand side. No, you had to be on the left-hand side to not smoke. Oh well, in yeah, that's what I'm saying. The whole point in was the like, dome in Worthing. You had to smoke on the left. Oh, okay. Well, when I went to the Barnet Odeon, it was the non. It was the non-smoking. That was that was the most insane thing about it. Was the cinema was that we you know we, everyone smoked in the cinema except if you went in the non-smoking bit, which I said is like going in the non-weeing bit of the swimming pool. It doesn't matter. You end up swimming in it all the same anyway. An email from Ian Hunter, but not that one. I went, <laughs> I went. That's how he signs it. I, I wonder whether you might be able to help me. It's a mighty long way. It's a query seeking clarification on what the code of conduct advises that you're to do. Following the viewing of a film, which you have seen on your own, yes, and what you are obliged to do when leaving, when you see another solo viewer. Okay. In the last six months, I have seen both Dunkirk and Star Wars on my own. My wife didn't fancy either, and the kids weren't bothered, old enough, or both. Okay, but he means he went on his own, but not that it was an empty cinema. There are other people in the cinema. Correct. Yeah, fine. But he's gone on his top. Yes, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, exactly like our, our German list. Yes. So it was quite obvious when we left that we'd all seen the same film on our own and where and we're in the same boat, if you pardon the pun. Yeah. So when leaving, I did what any good British person would do in these circumstances. I tried my hardest to avoid all eye contact and get away as quickly as possible. But okay. is this right? I had Mark recently say that he went to see Early Man on his own yeah. and had a great old time. But I wonder whether he had a chat with his fellow cinema goers afterwards when he left and talked about their favourite parts of the film or what they didn't enjoy. Some clarification would be great. I can't say that I won't find it hard to mend my British ways if it turns out that I should be discussing the film afterwards with perfect strangers, but I'm happy to give it a go if it's required. Ian, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, OK, so when I saw Early Man, I saw it in a, in a screening room and it was me and one other person. And uh, on the way out, we did briefly exchange pleasantries. I mean, he had been very good because he had put up with me laughing like a hyena all the way through the film. And then we said something like, that was really funny, wasn't it? And isn't it great that Alban can make you laugh as much as they do, which they did. My... 
my main memory of uh, going to a movie and having a conversation with somebody after this is this, sorry this is a slightly long story but I'll try, I'll try and keep it as short as possible when I was a kid I used to go to the, the Odeon in Hendon one of the things that they would do there is that they would do revivals of old films and so I saw Ben-Hur there and I saw um, you know sort of other classics at that time and I think it was I think it was Ben-Hur there was uh, if you got to see a film quite a few times, you'd get to recognise the print because the print would it would age and it would have jumps and blips in it. And if you'd seen it three or four times, you'd know where those jumps and blips were coming. And I was in the foyer in the interval of Ben Hur, and I fell into conversation. I was a kid. And I fell into conversation with a, with an older patron, and he we started talking about the way in which the film had aged, and it was really poignant because. He started talking about it as as if the film itself had a face, and the and the the the, the creases on the celluloid which you recognise were like you know that absolutely lovely House Martin song. Is it called Crow's Feet? You know, have to. Sorry. You, you know, oh, do you mean Prettiest Eyes? Yes, is that what it's called? It's Beautiful yeah, South. But, what did I say? House Martins. Okay, sorry, I wasn't a million miles away. It was Paul Paul Heaton, yeah? It is Paul Heaton, Paul, yes. Fine. And that lovely thing about falling in love with a face and falling in love with the way the creases on a face actually tell you about the story of the face. And he started talking about the print of Ben-Hur in that same way. And it really moved... We had a, it was a lovely conversation, a really lovely conversation. Then we both went our separate ways and watched the rest of the film. 60, 25th of December's 59th, 4th of, of July. July. You can't have too many good times, something you can't... Something like that. can't have too many... Yeah. I, I love that song, and one of the reasons I love that song is that it takes me back to the Hendon Odeon and this conversation with this. So do you? So do you, So what is the deal? So do we try and do we try and engage other solo viewers? Well, I tend not to, but then partly I tend not to because I'm just terribly socially awkward. But that was one case in which I wasn't terribly socially awkward, and I felt that it was a lovely conversation yeah. to have. And it was in the it was in the interval. It was in the interval of the film. Well, I'm happy that we helped, maybe or maybe not. Anyway, it's time for DVD of the week, everyone. Is it? Hey, Mark, did you spot in the news this week that a lady orca, a killer whale in old money, a lady orca, can mimic words such as hello oh, yeah, did, and yes. bye-bye? Yes, I did. It's a shame those trainers weren't brought onto the set of one of this week's choices for DVD of the week, Flatliners, about which you said, I didn't believe the characters were temporarily dead. I didn't believe they were alive in the first place. Good line. Safe to say you won't be picking that one. Yeah. But what do we... Uh, all pick for a keeper. Here's the list. Charles Matthews Brennan. Does the twice-reviled, vapid dud Flatliners count as a reissue or a new release? Seriously, I'm trying to... I'm dying to see Blade Runner again. I'd have to go with Beach Rats for a new, new film and Algiers for the oldie. Uh, Andre says, Is Blade Runner 2049 for me? For sure, it was my favourite film of the past year and I went to see it twice in cinemas, which I almost never do. As for reissues, I go with the Battle of Algiers because it has some interesting parallels with last year's Detroit. Russell Hewitt says, I lost my IMAX virginity to BR 2049. <laughs> the seawall soundtrack was like being assaulted by some newfangled sonic weapon. Almost lost control of my bladder. Thanks, Russell. My film of the year for sure. And Scott Bennett, about 20 years ago this week, a brilliant young chap called Edward Coughlin selected the Battle of Algiers for our sixth form film club, which he curated. I've lost track of him since, but think of him and the awestruck reception it got on the day every time I watch it. A masterpiece, and thanks to Edward if he's out there in the Witterverse. What would be 
our, but it's one of Paul Greengrass's favourites. Yeah. Uh, what would be our DVD of the week? So we're we going to do the 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 new one or the old ones? You were talking about both. Why don't you merge time? it into a beautiful mashup? Okay, so I'm going to go for the new one. I am going to go for Blade Runner 2049. We've talked about it so much here on the thing. We you had that brilliant interview with Denis Villeneuve, which was only on the podcast. If you haven't heard that, Denis Just last week, do listen to it because it's terrific and it's great to hear him talking about it. On the old movie reissue, I'm going to go for something wild. The Criterion Collection. And do you know why I'm going for something wild? Quite apart from the fact that it's a it's a sort of really exciting, fun movie. I remember seeing it at Corner House in Manchester when it first came out. But do you know why, particularly this week, in relation to Phantom Thread? A uh, rhetorical question, I feel. Okay, because if you stay to the very end of the credits of Phantom Thread, you will see that very movingly it is direct. It is dedicated to Jonathan Demme. Oh yes, yes, that's right. I did stay, and yeah. I did see that, and I did know the. So answer. it kind of ties up rather nicely. So the master on film four. And then something wild, which is dedicated to Jonathan Demi, all roads meet through Phantom Thread. Beautifully done. Nicely constructed. Nicely woven. It is, and we're going to finish our weave with a little bit of... Weave? Yes, it's going to be a crochet uh, topping. Okay. Because why don't we just finish with a little bit of this, just because you mentioned it. So we're just going to move you just a little bit, don't you think? Okay, nice nice way to finish. Thank you so much. Line one is the time. What? I just I love this. See what they can do is they can write about growing old, and very few people can write about getting old. I haven't heard this for a while. It's lovely. When did this come out? If we're annoying you by talking through it, it's because we have copyright reasons. Yes, that's right. When did it come? How long ago is it out? Oh, this this line now. And I only write them down just in case you should die. Very few people could get away with that line. Crow's feet, 1994. Oh, is that that old? That's over 20 years old. 60, 25th of December, 59. 59, 4th of July. You can't. Oh, beg your pardon. Oh, I've got, a, I've got an anecdote for you, buddy. Oh, great. Yeah, here we go. Wait, wait. Take a good look at these crow's feet. Sydney. Fine. Okay, oh, that's so a heartbreaker. You now have to tell me. You have, yeah, okay. I'm going to phrase this in terms of a question. Yes. Last night I went to the UK Americana Awards, okay, which was enormously enjoyable, and it finished up. Right, I'm, I've got Billy Bragg sitting behind me. Wow. Okay, and I've got Sir Patrick Stewart sitting in front of me. Sir Pat Stew? Yeah. Did you ask him about... And the whole thing finished with a fantastic final show. It was Robert Plant and his band yeah. with Mumford and & Sons and Seth Lakeman, and they did Gallows Pole. Right? <laughs> That's what they did. All the way through. It was okay. just extraordinary. So many great talents. Right. What did Billy Bragg say to me? At the, when it had finished, we were standing up, huge round of applause. Billy Bragg leant forward and said... Hello to Jason Isaacs. No. He said, now that's skiffle. And he also said his paperback is out. <laughs> Which, incidentally, I gave, not in paperback, in hardback to Dave Norris for his birthday. And I gave it to him on the basis that since he's read every book about projection, every book about James Bond, I thought, what will he not have? I know what he'll not have. He'll not have Billy Bragg on Skiffle. That'll be it. Anyway, we've whiffled on all the way through this song. Apologies for spoiling it. Thank you for downloading this podcast and no other. too many good times, children. You can't have too many lives. 
Take a good look at these crow's feet Sitting on the prettiest eyes Well, my eyes look like a map of the town And my teeth are either yellow or they're brown But you'll never know 